Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the B-Side for the Film Stage website. As always, I am Dan Mecca. And as always, I'm with my good friend Connor O'Donnell. And today, uh, we're going to talk about a guy from a place where I currently live and currently love, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, his name is Michael Keaton, though he was born Michael Douglas. We'll talk about that. Um, this is a place where we talk about movie stars, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones that they made in between. And to talk about Keaton, we brought in um, a guy we've been wanting to have on for a long time, uh, who is a force of a podcast that me and Connor both love, that if you are not listening, you should definitely listen to. Today we have Andrew Jupin, one of the hosts of the We Hate Movies podcast, also the senior film programmer at the Jacob Burns Film Center. Andrew, how are you doing? Hello, fellas. Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. This is uh, very cool. It's very cool talking about uh, movies with a different group of folks. So. <laughs> well, and that's so I was thinking about so I so um I we had you guys on I think twice for our Cinephile Game Night totally. last year, which was great. They were like. Some of our most fun episodes. You guys are awesome, obviously. And and, oh, and thanks. through that, honestly, that I knew about the We Hate Movies podcast, but I did not listen until you guys came on. And I, you know, I was like, oh, let me listen to these guys, obviously, finally. And then I like kind of just I like listen all the time now. And I think I even <laughs> I think I even tweeted like I got my Spotify whatever how many things you listen to and it was like uh -huh. you listen to the most the most listened to podcast was we Hate movies and that like took me by surprise it just oh kind my of goodness happened. and it's i like taking me by I, surprise i added i think i added you guys and i was like well guys this is a whole and like and anyway it's one of those things like you know what it is andrew if i may sure. my my wife loves the podcast which is oh, if, if you know nice. you know in the world of the podcast i listen to a lot of sports podcasts a lot of movie podcasts and it's not always conducive to like your significant other being like, oh yeah, like let's keep this on in the car or sure. whatever. But she like loves the comedy. You guys are great. So that is kind of almost one of the en enduring things about it. So thank you for uh, the many hours of listening. I think the one that 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 really got her hooked was the Sphere episode. Mm, okay, which we did cover actually did, as well on our, our Sam, Sam Jackson, Jackson episode. Uh, uh, who? What else was uh, covered on that one? Uh, oh, we did uh, rules we did of engagement, the, rules of engagement, Ooh, the red violin, yep. the red Ooh. violin, and then oh, and then <laughs> Formula Fifty One, also known as oh. the Fifty First State, which I think I said at the time, maybe I didn't. I but for the record, it certainly is one of the worst movies we've talked we've about. We've covered. On this yeah. Oh wow, is that right? Have you seen? I that movie? recently. Uh, which one? Red Violin? No, 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 no. Formula. 51. Oh, Formula Fifty One. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you keep that in your back pocket for a We Hate Movies episode or something. Oh my god! Absolutely. Um, I recently watched Rules of Engagement, and it is a like blissful TNT. We call them Dad for Noons. Yeah. Where it's just you yeah. are settling into a dad movie. A lot of those. You could not you know wish for more boring courtroom drama <laughs> you know war crimes issues it's, it's so exquisite <laughs> it does speak to a different time in like those types of movies where it's like yeah let's talk about this it'll be a little racist we'll just kind of skate right, skate yep. right through that and well, you, absolutely you basically kind of you, you kind of time stamp it based on it's also like it's release date you know you're like eh, i don't know just what you know there are certain <laughs> things you, you should expect uh um but so but so 
okay, so Michael Keaton is who we're going to talk about, and and um, uh, I guess to start, we'll talk about how we came to know and love Keaton, I suppose, but. A man with a lot of B-sides. Let's just say that off the bat. Yeah. We're going to talk about three <laughs> yeah. in particular. We're going to talk about The Squeeze from 1987. We're going to talk about Speechless from 1994. And we're going to talk about Game 6 from 2005, directed by Michael Hoffman, written by Don DeLillo, which is very exciting. Um, All of your listeners just had to run to IMDb like, what are those movies? Exactly. <laughs> well, and so and so, especially The Squeeze, which, yeah. I mean, we're going yeah. to start with. Although but, I but, do think The Squeeze has become a little internet infamous because of it. Because of the poster. Yeah, we'll, which we'll, we'll talk about it, but... But so for me, I'll start. So Keaton in my life, um, it's kind of weird, right? I mean, obviously the Batman movies, you know, of course you think of, and I and I suppose early on those were prevalent. Um, you know, I'm a kid, I'm 32. So if I'm being very honest, probably in my childhood, the one that hit me hardest before I kind of went back and rediscovered Returns in the original, though I'm sure I'd seen them, was Batman Forever, right? Which I know is like a funny thing, but just in terms of, you know. So Keaton my, wasn't, he wasn't like, wasn't really your Batman as a kid. Well, I, I mean, mm. I guess not. I mean, if I'm being honest, my Batman, this is going to sound funny, but my Batman was Adam West because that's my dad's Batman. So Got I, it. I grew up watching that movie all, all constantly. And the, you know, some the days, some days, some days you, you just can't, can't get rid of a bomb, dude. I mean, <laughs> that movie, you know, I love that movie and I still, still love that movie. Um, so anyway, but, um, and then, like, it's weird, right? Like, I remember watching Jack Frost, right? I would have been, you know, I don't Whoa. know, 11, right? And that's, mm. a you know, a famously kind of not great movie and actually kind of spells the end of his leading man period. He basically takes a four-year break after that. And, like, just a movie that is just, like... We did an episode on that, like, in our early day. I mean, we've been doing our show for, like, 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And that was early on. And that, I mean, when you sign up for a movie in where your character dies in a car accident and your soul possesses a snowman <laughs> there's the door dude yeah, yeah, there is yeah. the door yeah. it's waiting for you, you know? i always think i always when you say when you say that i always think of the story where stephen baldwin tells where he got the offer for biodome coming off of the success of like usual suspects and whatever mm. and alec baldwin said to him like do not take this movie it will ruin your career <laughs> And Stephen Baldwin's like, whatever, dude. He took the, and he took it. And like, not to like overly praise Alec Baldwin, but credit to Baldwin there. He was right. And like, you know, and I think it's like you want to know the choices sometimes. Yeah, did that Keaton they make. did Keaton have a Baldwin that was like, don't play the dead snowman dad? Well, and I think I think Griffin Newman, mutual, you know, mutual friend and in game mm -hmm. night uh guest. Griffin Newman said, I believe on blank check, that I think Clooney was supposed to play Jack Frost. And if you look at the Ooh. snowman, it the, the facial design is Clooney and it's not That's, Keaton. I believe, wow. yeah, I believe it that's true. It also feels way more, I don't know, that feels more correct. I don't know. Anyway. But yeah, well, yeah. And, and, you know, ironically, obviously, yeah. you know, Clooney had just been Batman. So anyway, Andrew, why don't you tell mm -hmm. us, Keaton in your life, what's like your first memory of Keaton? See, it's funny. I think, you know, so I'll be 37 and yeah. uh, I feel like because of just the littlest bit of age difference there, yeah, yeah. Dan, I think we're kind of like ships in the night. Like he <laughs> is... Uh, he was my Batman because I was definitely seeing Batman Returns in the theater. Mm -hmm. I right. was definitely I was definitely there for that. And then 
I didn't see it, but he also wrote that line and my like budding interest in like horror comedy because Beetlejuice was on all the time. Sure. It was mm. on all the time. We had it on tape all the time with with those two movies. So that's like those were my entry points. And then like probably middle school, well, it took that long before I sort of paid attention to like, oh, he's made movies that aren't like big ten pole things yeah, like yeah. that and finding things like the dream team mm. oh my god that movie, <laughs> totally yeah. underrated uh probably a, a could be a b-side yeah right? i mean yeah you know yeah <laughs> yeah i mean connor what about you are you like me probably not right it's, I feel like I'm, you so i'm actually movies. kind of sort of in between the t- dan and i you and i are the same age right but I, and i think age is kind of an important factor here because mm. i think it does like you said andrew it is kind of a ships in the night thing but i also i have uh, I'm the youngest of 10 kids, so I have a bunch of older siblings. Totally, so wow. he was one of those movie stars, I think, that like I saw a lot of his movies at a young age because I had older siblings that were watching them and stuff like that. And um, and I think and I was I watched after watching all of our B-sides, I rewatched last night. I rewatched Batman Mm. And movie rules, in case you didn't know, it's the best. But wait, what? Yeah, go I, on. Have you, heard, have you seen this? Have you heard of it? I don't know if you guys know this little known character named Batman. Um, also, this little known character called the Joker. It's yeah. Anyway, it'll change. Uh, his name's um, Jack Napier, dude. Get it right. <laughs> um, but anyway, no. I, I rewatching it, I realized like, oh, I think Keaton like was my first exposure to a movie star. Yeah. Like to, oh, to the idea that like, oh, this is a like, I know who that dude is. And it, this is a like Michael Keaton movie. Right. Like and not not Batman in particular, but I think Batman was like the gateway drug because I mm-hmm. I would have only been one when Batman came out. But I remember and I think I've told this on this show before, but whatever it bears repeating. Um, My grandmother, my mom's mom used to she we didn't have cable for like the longest time but my grandmother did and so she used to take like those old six hour vhs's Mm. and Mm. she would just record movies like and she would ship us these like gigantic boxes of like almost like a serial killer like just numbered vhs's (laughs) Um, but um almost like michael keaton in white noise if you've seen that film um i saw that in the theater (laughs) i just rewatched it we'll get to it a little oh you mean the hit the hit the hit movie well i have have some thoughts about that movie but anyway we, we used to we used to get these boxes of vhs tapes that were just that didn't even list like the names of the movies, they were just numbered. So all I remember was that tape 103 was the shit because tape 103 <laughs> oh my God. had, it was a triple feature. It was Days of Thunder, sure. Batman, Classic. and Unforgiven. Oh, wow. And so as a kid, wow. uh, too young, right? Like I definitely saw Days of Thunder too young. I probably saw Batman too young and obviously saw Unforgiven way too young. But it was only because I didn't feel like fast forwarding and I just would let the tape run after Batman ended. So like those three movies forever are just combined. In we, need a, wow. we need to send those tapes to the curator on this podcast, Mr. <laughs> Andrew Jupin, and get his opinion on your grandma RIP's uh, <laughs> programming capabilities. Programming capabilities. That's incredible. But, Let me ask you this. Was it tape one, uh, 103 because it was the 103rd tape she had mailed? I believe so. 
Like we oh get my, out of here. Your grandma I'm was not, incredible. No, I'm not joking. Like <laughs> wow, these, these tapes were like these. It was box like giant. And boxes what's so crazy? Is she was turns out she was related to Jacob Burke. So it's like this crazy. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> oh wow, that's uh, totally strange. One oh three. But anyway, that's amazing. <laughs> anyway, that's my long way of saying that like Batman was a super like Batman was like. I formed words and sentences based on watching Batman sure, as sure. like a toddler, you know? You're like and talking to your mom and you're like, you know, no, Ma, no, so you're my number one guy. <laughs> no, hang on, hang on. So two specific, <laughs> two very specific anecdotes. And I'm sorry oh for the long-winded story, but I <laughs> Here hope, we go. I Here hope we it's go. worth it, listener. So uh, this is according, I, I have obviously no memory of this. This has been told to me, but I was, I don't know, two, I guess. Which I guess checks out with when we would have gotten that tape and I would have watched it or whatever. Um, and I had started to talk in full sentences. And my sister, my oldest sister, Kate, was away at college. And every time my mom would be like, oh, Connor's talking and whatever. Do you want to talk to him? I would just shut the hell up. Like, I wouldn't say anything. So she didn't believe it. Right. <laughs> and one and one day, whatever, she came home to visit it, but I don't, I have no idea when it was. And we went to pick her up at the airport. And for some reason we were waiting or whatever. So we were at this like diner, this like greasy spoon near, I want to say it was near JFK probably, but I don't remember. Um, and we were in this greasy spoon and whatever. And I'm like sitting up on one of the stools at the counter and I look around and the place is kind of dingy. And I guess I called it a vat of chemicals, and there like, and literally, it just—it's just because just that phrase had like burned into my brain. But all that's to say, Keaton holds a very special place in my heart, kind of just because of that, because I think he's just the first dude that I like saw in movies, and then like obviously seeing like Mr. Mom and uh, and Beetlejuice and whatever. He was like the first person that I would recognize, like. Oh, that's a guy who's in movies. Um, kind of yeah. sounds like Michael Keaton was your first teacher. Mike, a yeah. Little, a in a lot a of ways. Little, yeah, like a little. <laughs> so that, I mean, Batman specifically, that very specific movie has a has a very special place in my heart. But um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to go back and rewatch that movie from a like taking nostalgia out of it, but even just looking at it from a performance standpoint. And where it sits in kind of his career and that and that transition. Um, and we can talk about it in a bit, but let's we can dive into. Yeah. This. So, I mean, yeah. And the thing about Keaton as we get to the squeezes. So he's a comedian in Pittsburgh, right? He kind of he's doing all those different things. He makes the move. He pops in Night Shift, which is a great kind of funny movie. If you guys haven't seen it, that's his like it's literally like watching a star like be born on screen literally mm -hmm. it's kind of an amazing performance and then the next year is mr mom which is like a shock hit that people love and it's like you know this thing of like what a guy can be at home <laughs> yeah. and it's like a movie that hasn't aged great i guess but actually hasn't aged as bad as you would think it has it's aged. i mean the like, general hmm. i watched it last night like the general concept of the movie has aged horrendously 
right? Like, yeah, so but the, the comedy isn't overly reliant on like, right? The, jo- really, the jokes know, themselves yeah. are still are still funny. Like, yeah, two twenty, two twenty one, whatever. Whatever it takes. It takes um, is the best. So then, Johnny Dangerously, very underrated movie. Didn't oh what, yeah, wasn't wasn't a bomb, but kind of just came and went. Great Amy Heckerling movie. People kind of um, love it now, though, right? Like, it's not people love it yeah. now. Gung Ho was a huge hit, which that has aged not great. That's yeah. a Ron Howard movie. But yeah, like, that one's point, tough. That one's tough. But my point is like these are four basically like other than dangerously which isn't even a bomb it's just like a modest okay thing he's kind of like crushing and this is like tom hanks is starting as well and they're like competing for the same roles touch and go happens which kind of was a product it was a it was a flop but it was a product of it got um basically the company that made it kind of went under and it got passed to another company so it kind of got buried type of a thing um and then 87 is his first out and out Straight down the middle, total flopola, cost twenty two million, made two, um, <laughs> directed by a gentleman named Roger Young, who's mostly a TV director. Um, though he did direct a movie a few years before the squeeze that I actually watched yesterday called Lassiter, starring Tom Selleck. Which that, actually, that poster is kind of dope. Which I actually, saw you tweet that poster. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I actually enjoy it. It's actually a very cool. Uh, it's about movie. a uh, animation magnate that uh, <laughs> gets fired for being a total jerk. But hey, Andrew, you know what? He, he redeems himself at the end. You'll never oh, believe excellent. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, oh my gosh. Now I'm just thinking about John Lasseter. Um, I'm sorry. No, so, well, so here's the thing with the, so the squeeze. Now, now Andrew, yeah. You guys make you guys make art out of recapping your movies. Obviously, we <laughs> we work quicker because we're covering more. I have to say, I was thinking about this. Who's gonna? Who among us is gonna try to explain what happens in the squeeze? I, oh man, I can I try. You want me to, I, I can I take a crack if you want. I mean, I was gonna try myself. I don't know. Try to do it in like a minute. Though. Okay. Try give give us your best. <laughs> and you know what? I'm not. I do have the IMDb pages up in front of me. I'm not. Don't even do gonna, it. I'm not even gonna look at them. I'm just gonna try and like get through it. So, Michael Keaton. Oh God! Six seconds are already plays, up. You gotta pick it up. Pick it up. <laughs> so Michael Keaton plays essentially a con man, but also burgeoning like industrial artist, artist. Yeah, artist. Like, yeah. You know? yeah. first question mark of yeah, no, the no, no, future yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> i took it i took it to be he's an artist who does cons for like a bit that's sure. what i, I okay. yeah i had it flipped that way too yeah, yeah it's weird because we're not introduced in that order exactly which, mm-hmm. yeah which you're, right, you're right so joey any, joey pants god bless anyway, yeah, joey pants <laughs> um you lo- you always love to see him basically the two of them con artists michael keaton has an ex-wife who has left him and is essentially has put skip traces out to to serve him because he's like got back alimony and whatever the uh one uh skip trace that is trying to serve him is played by radon chong um and essentially the two of them the two of them get involved because Michael Keaton, in kind of a in in what starts off as an, a not atypical sort of noir type thing, mm. Michael Keaton gets involved, gets roped in by his ex-wife and her dealings into finding a dead body in her apartment. Right now, 
it turns out this is because his wife has a like mysterious black box in her possession and people are after it. One of those people is a heavy played by meatloaf. Um, a silent heavy. Yes. Which is the worst. <laughs> um, for, for, Formula 51 star meatloaf. Yes. No way. Yeah, yeah, he is in that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Add to watch list. <laughs> Um, and, and 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 Andrew, he is not silent in that. No, sir. Oh, excellent. Cer- certainly isn't. Um, That's what you want. <laughs> so, so anyway, so uh, basically, everyone's after this black box, and Keaton and Joey Pants sort of through Keaton's skills as an industrial artist, because he works on like he works with like electronics and whatever in his art. He's like, there's a. There's a big dinosaur in this movie made out of televisions. <laughs> Feels very of its time. Um. Anyway, the he winds up sort of working with this black box, opening it up, and he realizes it's some version of an electromagnet, right? And you're kind of like, what is this for? And I mean, we're I can go ahead and just spoil the movie, right? Like, are we gonna? Oh my god! Yes. Okay, sure. Please. <laughs> so, and this is if it hasn't gotten crazy already where the movie just kind of totally loses its shit is that like it somehow winds up being connected to the New York lottery. Yeah. Oh boy. And there is a nugget early in the movie where part of the reason Keaton's ex-wife skips town is because you realize that she's won the lottery and it obviously isn't a coincidence. It's because they've used this electromagnet to like rig the balls in the lottery drawing to then obviously, you know, buy they'll buy their ticket, then they rig the ball so that their ticket becomes a guaranteed winning ticket, right? So it's just this whole, I don't know, it's just this whole thing. Um, and it just plays out in a manner. I, I mean, that's kind of the movie. I don't know. I don't really, there's like not, yeah, am I, I mean, like missing I mean, anything? No, huge? no, 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 I no. Like, I mean, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, there's like a million other things, but no, I mean, essentially that's, what the movie is about. I mean, this is a bad, 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 bad movie. Like yeah. I, 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 not, I, not even really in a, I mean, I guess you could maybe call it fun, bad because some no. of the, some of the choices are so baffling. Um, but yeah, I don't, well, you know what made me the saddest is that one of the most fan things, one of the most notable things about this movie is there was a stunt man who died during the mm-hmm. making of it. There was a stunt of a car, going into the wa- going off of a pier into the water. Oh man, really? And, I don't think I know this. And one. hang on, hang on. So it's actually horrifying. So it gets like, worse. Yeah. So basically the I mean I guess I spoil it a bit by saying that he died, but the the manner in which it happened is like insane. So they made the car as light as they could, blah 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 blah. They made all the modifications to it and the stunt man was put in this like five-point harness and and whatnot. And for reasons unknown, I guess they took well, they took out the windshield of the car, but they took out the windshield, which I guess makes sense, right? But they took out the windshield and they replaced it with essentially plastic, it but like flexible plastic. So they fastened it in, and the the modifications that had been made to the car made it we I guess front heavy in a way that the stunt team did not predict. And so when the car goes over the pier, it was supposed to just kind of do a flat belly flop in the water. And that, you know, and the um, and the stunt man 
had an air canister under his seat for, you know, obviously the car would fill up with water. And, you know, so they, they had taken some measure of precautions. But what they didn't account for was, I guess, this front weight in the nose of the car. So it goes in nose first and the force of the water hitting their plastic windshield released it immediately. But it then essentially just wrapped the guy up. Oh, no. In plastic. So he couldn't get out of his harness and he couldn't get to the air canister Oh geez. and he died. And it makes me that made me really sad because it's like you're just like for this, for the squeeze, for the squeeze. Yep. All this is the thing for the squeeze. This... Not that it not even if it was the greatest movie ever made, not that it would have been OK, obviously. Mm-hmm. But like it's just the fact that it's the, one of the worst movies we've covered on this podcast yeah. uh, hurts. But more often than not. If a film is dedicated to a person who died making it, it's a terrible movie. <laughs> this always happens. And then what sucks is you're just left with like, well, this is what was dedicated to me. This is what I gave yeah, my life like, for. What, yeah. what was the it for? squeeze. Yeah. It's well, terrible. It reminds me of the Deadpool 2 thing, right? Didn't that poor young woman pass away making Deadpool 2, I believe? And it was like... Not that I really even dislike those movies, frankly. I, 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 those are polarizing, polarizing movies. But like, it's just that thing of like, they're just movies, right? You just kind of yeah, like, like why, oh, why are people like, losing their lives doing it? You know, I just, I mean, but at the same time, look, it is, you know, look, it's, it's, it's the profession in some respect. But yeah, the squeeze—that's just such a. It hurts. That's a sad it story. Hurts. Um, yeah, Andrew. I mean, what what do you think about this one? This is a toughie. What do you think? It's tough. I mean, it's it's far and away the worst of the three we're going to talk about today. Sure. Uh, so yeah, so we're we getting it out, we're getting it out of the way. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, it is always a bummer when there is like an eleventh hour lotto scam plot point to your movie. <laughs> I didn't. I don't know if I just wasn't paying close enough attention. I mean, I did not get that the wife. Uh, won the lottery i knew there was the awful thing at the beginning of the movie where he's like thinking he's like got a good feeling about winning the lottery and that started depressing me because i was like oh no he's like a degenerate gambler those are the worst kinds of characters sometimes just like a sad sack sort of guy so like right away that was all weird because he's really obsessively like talking to joey pants about the lotto numbers and oh it's it's i feel it like i feel it these numbers are coming Ooh, that's sad um and like i was kind of in it for a while because it's like okay vague crime comedy yes pseudo noir scuzzy new york city on location which i'm a total sucker for yeah Yeah. so i was in it for a bit but then once you realize it's just going towards this lotto scam yeah that there's some lottery event happening on you know the 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 i guess it's the is it the actual ship that's downtown that's a museum now intrepid yeah yeah i if it's not i don't think they call it out specifically but that was what i assumed it was or an intrepid-esque situation but it's like what what lottery event is this why are there 300 people for a lottery party like it's It's a lottery event that reminded me not to bring it back but like i was like this is like akin to the joker parade in batman like it's just like a bunch of like <laughs> yes. ravenous people and this insane clown on a stage who's like here's your money like it's like <laughs> it's such a bizarre and i agree and i like, believe i believe that guy is the hollywood squares host from back then who plays the lot i guy. believe so but like yeah but i and granted I, you know i don't 
I don't play the lottery regularly, and I don't even, frankly, I remember seeing like lotto numbers on TV as a kid every once in a while, so, but I vaguely remember it. And so, you know, I'm not some expert on the New York lottery, but I also was just <laughs> like, it can't be like this, right? No, like, what no. is this? I will well, say- this, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 I was just going to say, to piggyback off of what you said, Jubin, because I- I do hate to like leave a movie without at least finding like something that I was like, well, mm-hmm. there's that. Uh, I do think the first like 10 minutes of the movie are pretty compelling. Like mm-hmm. the opening with the cat and his ex-wife gets into the apartment and the cat's sitting there snacking on a thumb in the foreground and yep. you're like waiting for her to notice it. And you're like, this is insane. Um that's kind of an interesting little opening. And then you go from that to the poke. I think the poker game scene is just good. It's like, a, I think it's mm-hmm. a good little character intro. The whole bluff thing. With the it, cars. Funny, yeah, that's a fun guy. And he's and Keaton's got that energy. And it's it's interesting because you're like, yeah, like this is the dude who came out the gate in Night Shift, right? Like mm. I watched Night Shift for the first time in preparation for this. And like to to go back to that for a second, like. That movie, when he enters that movie, it really is like a star making thing where you're just like, who the fuck is this guy? And he brings a little bit of that energy here. And it's it what this made me want to see was a little bit more of like, I would love to see a Michael Keaton down on his luck proper like film noir detective movie like you know like you know give yeah. me give me michael keaton energy a la but in like a doc sportello inherent vice situation mm-hmm. or something right and that's what i thought this movie was going to be for a second and it is it is not uh it's not yeah it has it has <laughs> it has it has you know i always try to think of comps in the time because obviously that's how the business works in some respects and even though after hours wasn't a hit Sure. You get the sense that somebody saw that energy. And, you know, of course, After Hours is a very good movie. And it was almost trying to harness that. Maybe this script had a little bit of that. But it's like every element of this movie is just a miss where it's like the title is a miss. Yeah. Right. The the Ray Don Chan character is a miss, even the though she's charming. <laughs> she, yeah. The poster, which when we were emailing <laughs> about this, I like sent Andrew, I was like, the squeeze got to talk about the squeeze and essentially the poster it's in the link to the article you'll see it the poster is michael keaton getting squeezed between the twin towers which are like being Crumbling, crushed which yeah which is falling uh, to pieces which yeah not, I, I, will, I mean you know whatever to be fair to the marketing department in 1987 obviously oh, sure. nothing no, wrong, no, nothing well, wrong with the poster at the time well yeah but it is like what is crazy is so they obviously when it came out on vhs it that was the cover right and it circulated for a while and then obviously in 2001 when september 11th happened that was also the beginnings of the dvd boom and things like that and so i believe this was columbia tristar i believe yeah um and columbia tristar was like hey we're gonna i don't know if they were sony yet actually but but basically the you know whoever had the rights at the time was like oh, like we should modify this or just change the cover or whatever. And they apparently did, but it never, the movie never got a DVD distribution. So it never, like whatever alternate cover never actually made it out into the wild. And then in 2017, (laughs) the movie got like, I, I, what I would assume since it's 2017, it got a 30th anniversary, like (laughs) Blu-ray. 
A lot of people were looking forward I to guess. it. A lot of <laughs> marked calendars. Yeah. We were, we so. were all. I don't know. If, I don't. I, I, I haven't seen the Blu-ray, so I don't know if it's actually billed as a 30th anniversary. But I'm just assuming because it would be the 30 years. But, sure. um, but that apparently the Blu-ray has this horrendous. Uh, I, I guess enough time had gone by that they were like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, and and it. So apparently the Twin Towers poster is the cover of the Blu-ray. I have it here on Blu-ray.com, and it is, it's a, this says it came out in 2019. There you go. Oh, okay. And it is the original cover. Did you see, though, uh, on IMDb, there's a slightly alternate one for what appeared to be foreign release? No. Where it's him and Ray Don Chong between the Twin Towers. Oh, my god. It's the same poster, but they're, like, in a phone booth, like, squeezed against each other. And it's so, I... So that's its that's its legacy, like Connor said earlier in the show. I mean, without a doubt, that is its legacy. And it's just funny, like in the key in in the Keaton career, right? Mm. Like it's just a forget not unlike Touch and Go, which I think you would only really know of Touch and Go unless you were a sports movie fan, because he's like he's a like hockey a, player. I, I was gonna say he's like a hockey guy that yeah. gets like mugged or something. Yeah, it's it's like it's like a it's like a a home it's like a home focused hockey player movie right he's a pro athlete but it's like Mm -hmm. not about that um and it's just so anyway yeah the squeeze is just one of those movies where i often think this right with movies like this when i was coming up in the industry to some respect i would read a lot of scripts as an intern da 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 da, whatever i would imagine the script to the squeeze probably read way better because of all of the chaos and when you think about casting keaton who who mines in chaos like i think you know the obvious comp of hanks and keaton competing for roles in the 80s and then hanks obviously goes stratospheric it's an easy comp but they were never the same person because keaton's or hanks's default is always like jimmy stewart Right. And, you yeah. know, and, 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 and Keaton's was always more like Jimmy Cack. That, right? Yeah. Like, that's what like, I was going to say. It's it, like Ke- Keaton's, <laughs> yeah. Keaton's chaos yeah. is the thing that sustained him. And, and Hanks is like inherent, you know, good trustworthiness yeah. is the thing that kind of ultimately sustained him. So it's a different thing. But anyway, so you understand why you cast him in the squeeze and he's doing everything he can, I suppose, in it. Yeah. He's yeah. not really the problem with the movie. Eh. It's not. I don't, and yeah. I will say, actually, he has one line delivery that I'll that I it's the only moment in the movie that I like chuckled out loud only because it's something that i think every human does when talking about the lottery like or when like either fantasizing about the lottery or whatever right is he says like he says like it's 52 million dollars well it's 26 million dollars but still right because he like does the calculation of like Mm -hmm. oh you're only actually gonna walk away with like half after taxes or whatever and it's the way that he delivers it that i was like yeah yeah i do that like anytime you know it comes up i'm like oh well it's not really 400 million you'd walk away with 200 but anyway um it's just you know it's so it's just one of those things like with the squeeze where you just go like wow like this was the final cut, you know. <laughs> I think it. It also seems like a movie where, as as it relates to that, they probably just ran out. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, they probably were like trying to get this movie together in some capacity, and like, at and then TriStar was like, "Hey, look, we gotta, we it's gotta come out. Like, we gotta just be done with it, guys." And then and then this is what they just. 
we're done with. I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it now. The troubled production went through two producers, two directors, two female leads, the death of a stuntman, an extra $10 million that wasn't originally budgeted, and a last-minute title change just for the honor of bombing at the box office during a highly competitive summer. And that is from TV Guide from 1987. Yeah. I mean... Uh, so summer TV, release, first yeah. of all, what are yeah. you thinking? Which, but I mean, also, what are you like, doing? But also, like, <laughs> I, that feels, I feel like, an easy thing to say now. But like, the '80s were the fucking wild west when it came to that stuff in terms of like, I guess, I don't summer. Know. I mean, it's '87. I, I, I think I agree with Andrew on this one, God. I don't know. <laughs> like a scuzzy New York, like not funny crime comedy, like. No, that's a that's an what? April. That's a yeah. solid like early November. Right, I was maybe. gonna say October, <laughs> maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So he's so lucky, man. I mean, he's so lucky. This movie is trash, and like you guys said, it tanked. And thank God for Beetlejuice, the very oh, well, next yes. year. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and that's a great yeah. segue. Whew, dodge that bullet. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, and look, this what I think is cool about. This period where he becomes briefly, you know, arguably the biggest star in the world for a couple of years is the thing that Ke the coolest thing about Keaton, the cool, absolute coolest thing about Keaton. And these three movies kind of encapsulate this a little bit is he always zigged when people wanted him to Zach. He was very mm. honest about that. Like he was like and that's why I really believe that's why he didn't become Tom Hanks in terms of the success, because he was like. No, I'm not going to just do this again. I'm willfully going to kind of do that. Obviously, Pacific Heights being the most specific example. If if Beetlejuice is not right, taking Beetlejuice mm -hmm. even at that point, people were like, "Don't take what you're going to play this like demon in this weirdo." Burton made the weird Pee Wee Herman Disney rejects you know movie guy, <laughs> and he does it, and it's a monster hit, of course. Mm -hmm. And then he follows it up with Batman. Everybody's befuddled and a little not excited about his casting in Batman, can which I, is pretty well documented. Can I? What's and up, we Kyle? don't. I know I harped on Batman, but I do. Before we move on for it from it, I do want to remark on one thing that I realized last night when I was watching it. Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, his, this is the Batman podcast. Yeah, no, 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 just, just his his performance in his performance in Batman. Right. The reason. It works like gangbusters, and the reason it still ages well, because I feel like as I get older, Batman as a character and a hero ages worse and worse, because you're like, oh, he's a rich guy who beats up mentally ill people. Um, but the <laughs> thing that Burton... And I, and, I, and I think by proxy, Keaton knew about Batman, and it's the reason those two movies still work like gangbusters is that he's just as fucking insane as everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's it's the like the leaning into the crazy that frankly no one's really done as Batman since, right? And it's something that totally it's not even necessarily wholly relatable, but it it it's what keeps him sympathetic when you think about the fact that he's like a billionaire. Um but anyway, that's all I wanted to say. And, Ke the, uh... and Keaton, that's that's in like no small part due to Keaton. Like he was yep. the one who offered up like the, oh, she should wake up in the middle of the night and see him hanging upside down. Like, <laughs> and he also, Keaton, yeah. by the way, too, is the reason we have the Batman voice, right? Like Batman before Batman 89 just sounded like Bruce Wayne, 
right? That's how Adam West played it. And then Keaton was like, oh, well, people would know who he is. So he's got to do something. And he was the one who like went to Burton and was like, oh, I'm going to talk different as Batman. So Keaton gave us swear to me. I mean, that's the ultimate great evolution. <laughs> um, you can but... draw the line directly yeah, to, yeah, swear right to, to swear to me. Swear to me. <laughs> um, my favorite, my favorite line in the original Batman. And this is the last we'll say about Batman. Is when he goes into the room to eat dinner or whatever with Kim Basinger, and he's yeah. like, and she's like, what's it? He's like, I don't think I've ever been in this room. Yeah, that's also, a great line. That's Keaton. Like that's yep. Keaton ad libbing. Like, and that's kind Love of that the reason. Line. That's the reason that performance rules because it's like he gets to be Beetlejuice and fucking you know, and gung-ho or Mr. Mom in the same yeah. movie, right? Like, he gets to kind of unlock all now, that shit. Now, shout out, as we get, as we talk uh, speechless, shout out to a couple movies in between. Uh, Clean and Sober comes out the same year as Beetlejuice. Not a great movie, but a great performance, uh, if you haven't seen that. It's a long-ass movie, which is what its problem is. It's like, it's over two hours. Too long. Yeah. It's too long, yeah. I, I think Keaton's really good in that as an actor. I think it's always hard to play addiction. It's kind of one mm -hmm. of those, like... It's not often done very well, only like kind of admirably or whatever, but he's actually, I think, very good in that. He uses that man against you. Pacific Heights, fun, trashy movie. He's the villain, kind of fun. One Good Cop is not very good. Do not watch that one. Um, much Ado About Nothing, he's Dogberry, small role, but is fun and is really hamming it up. And then, um, yeah, The Paper is like one of my favorite movies. Is like a journalist person writer. Yeah. You know, I've never seen it. I was Oof. just telling my wife oh. when we were watching Speechless. I've, I'd never seen you it. You should watch yeah. The Paper. The Paper rules. Because I'm very like, I mean, he's, ma he's made some great stuff, but I'm very touch and go with Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Um, so I got got a lot of blind spots in the Ron Howard film. Wait, Andrew, why are you touch and go with Ron Howard? He's never. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, ha Howard is. You know, one day we'll do Howard on this podcast because, like, I feel weirdly defensive of him because mm -hmm. of the good movies, but like, obviously, the bad ones are you know not not strong. And so you have that funny thing of like, but for whatever reason, I feel this like need to be like. No, but we, what the paper or oh no, right. you know, uh, you know, parenthood or um but uh so yeah, speechless comes out speaking to the paper the same year as the paper, also not a hit, speechless. Uh it makes 20, cost about 30, directed by Ron Underwood, who would go on to make the adventures of Pluto Nash, which God and bless. City Slickers. And City Slickers. And, and Tremors. Dude, and had an interesting career. And Heart and Souls, which is a fun oh, movie. Oh, yeah. wow. That's a movie. I've probably seen that movie 30 times. No fooling. Yeah, I'm a it was a, We had it on VHS yep. when I was a kid. It I remember that music VHS cover. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole thing. I mean, we just watched that movie. And for... Because we, you know, I don't know, big, big ghost house growing up, you know, <laughs> anything with ghosts, uh, we were always like sort of interested in. And so that movie, I mean, it's like sad as hell. It's a, it's when you think movie. about what that movie is, it's so sad and depressing. But we were like, but there's ghosts and they're going into his body. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just love the idea that you like sort of tacitly admitted that you may have lived in a haunted house as a child. It's a big <laughs> oh, ghost yeah, we were house. We're all about ghosts. A lot of ghosts around. Oh, sure. Just, constant <laughs> yeah, terror as a Rebecca yeah. was just floating in the attic. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, so, Andrew, why don't you do us the honor of of telling us about Speechless a little bit? We'll we'll, yeah, we'll so, see before you. So, Speechless is a um, a mid nineties uh, campaign trail set rom com. Uh, I guess supposedly, if the IMDb trivia is to be believed, based off of the relationship of uh, James Carville and his wife. 
who are a Democrat and a Republican strategist uh, themselves. Um, and it is Keaton and uh, Gina Davis, our speechwriters for two warring campaigns in a, a New Mexican Senate race, I think, is I'm remembering. I right? believe so, yeah. Uh, and they fall in love before realizing, uh oh. They're actually in in opposing campaigns, and it sort of goes from there as they uh, keep the relationship secret and like sometimes sabotage each other intentionally, sometimes accidentally, sometimes help the uh, campaign uh, on the other side. You know, a lot of a lot of twists and turns. Ernie Hudson is floating around working on one of these campaigns. Surprisingly deep cast. Yeah, Bonnie um, Bonnie Bedelia, Christopher mm -hmm. Reeve. Christopher Reeve. I mean, yeah. here, here we go. I mean, this is this is somebody's thesis. This is the original BVS. <laughs> I mean, this is Michael Keaton fighting Christopher Reeve yeah. over the love of a lady. Yeah, they do. I will say, <laughs> funny you say BVS because Keaton and Reeve have one of the kind of funner scenes where they're like chatting together and like Keaton kind of knows who Reeve is, but Reeve doesn't know, right? And it's like- When he's drinking on the pool table? Yeah, and it's kind yeah. of a fun, yeah. like Keaton plays it smart and Reeve is like kind of a Peter Jennings type of a- Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, cop. totally good call, yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. like handsome, but people, you know, Jennings RIP obviously was not a dummy, but I think that was kind of the the knock on him back in the day when people Just thought, a handsome guy, yeah, you like, know, reporting the news. Like yeah, a yeah, William yeah. Hurd broadcast news thing, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And just a- uh, the James Carville, that's Mary Mat Mary uh, Madeline, Mary Matlin, yes. I believe is her name. Ma Madeline, uh, Madeline, yeah. 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 And they they were like a, a celeb thing. I mean, that's like the Clinton nineties. Yeah. So like Carville, you know, Carville's credited with basically getting Clinton elected with St Stephanopoulos, and then that's primary to colors, and then it's mm -hmm. even like directly fictionalized in the Steven Soderbergh show K Street. Do you guys remember K yeah, Street? I do. Yeah. I had I had the entire series on the so standard yeah. deaf DVD. <laughs> there you oh, go. Yeah. yeah. And it's like it was like it was like that was like all improv and like Carville's yeah. in it with her. She's in it. John Slattery. Like it's pretty great. It's not bad. I, yeah. It's a show that nobody speaks about anymore. I think a lot of that has to do with if I'm correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm remembering cheap early aughts video. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. And that's like to our 2021 eyes, you can't watch that shit. No. It's, it's no. like those dogmate movies from the time. Sorry, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Anniversary party. No. Chuck and Bob. Oh, Buck, my God. No. Yeah. Like, anniversary party. Like, yeah. look at those movies. And I remember at the time, I wasn't crazy about Chuck and Buck, but anniversary party, I was all about when I saw that in the theater. Yep. And you go back to those, those like early DV, and it's like, well, yikes. Our good, yeah, our good buddy Eric D. Snyder, um, uh, who you know I've known for years now. He's gone to Sundance for you know thirty years or something, and he he I remember him telling me in the year in the like three years after Blair Witch, mm. he like vividly remembers like you know he sees you know thirty films of Sundance right, and he's like he's like sixty out of those ninety films were just like mini DV like Oof. just like shaky and I was just like how did you even sit through all of those like <laughs> and then the, K, the, the K Street thing is basically all of that Soderbergh goodwill after that bond that that monster year of Aaron Brockovich and traffic it's like he gets K Street made he gets full frontal made Oof, right yeah and it's just like he's just running around with a camera like you know yep. throwing Julia Roberts in front of the lens and um <laughs> And anyway, so 
Yeah, Speechless, this is, I think, the definition of a harmless movie, right? I, mm-hmm. It's just yeah. kind of, you watch it and you're just kind of like, I feel like if this was on We Hate Movies, Andrew, you guys would make a meal out of this because there's so much like <laughs> to, yeah. to criticize, but it is kind of charming in a way, I guess. I found it to be totally fine. I had never seen it. I, I literally watched it. I finished it like an hour before we started recording. Yeah. Um, I'd never seen it before. had never heard of it uh really before this the thing that bothered me about it though this movie has 100 a scene where the movie could straight up end and i was anticipating like a fade to black and then the next scene started and i was like oh that's weird and i paused it 20 minutes left of this movie yeah. i couldn't even believe it like there's the scene where they like the the first debate is happening, yeah, and it's kind of like everything sort of rushes to a head, and they hold and hands. They they're holding hands, and they're like, "Let's get out of here. We gotta go have sex right now." And they find yeah. like the control room. There's the gag where like because they're making out on the console, the broadcast is changing what they're airing, and you're like, "Okay, the music is swelling." This is it. I was putting my coat on. And then there's yeah. 20 minutes left of this movie. And it was like, oh, no. Like, all of the fineness and, like, low-level goodwill that had built itself up while I was watching this just started getting flushed yep. the last 20 yeah, minutes no, of I it. I think that's the totally fair assessment. Um, and just to kind of, I guess, so obviously you had mentioned it's based on the uh, – it's sort of loosely based on the real life story of James Carville and his wife. Uh, the com- the comp here would be the roles are switched. Gina Davis is a Democratic strategist. Keaton's a Republican strategist. That also plays way better than I frankly thought it would. And I think partially just because it's like 94 and it's when there was a little bit less of a difference between you know what i mean like between yep. the two no, politically that's, that's exactly right man you cannot make this movie today no, absolutely, cause, absolutely cause not like it just wouldn't work we should we should specify because um dan you said that carville worked for clinton at that same time mary madeline worked for the hw bush campaign yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and yeah. um and yeah i don't know it so it it definitely as the movie got going it worked better than i thought it would because of that they have pretty good chemistry, I think. I, which is weird They've because got some good chemistry. Yeah, I was yeah. looking. I was looking at some of the negative reviews of the movie when it came out, and a lot of them dog on the chemistry. And I was a little confused. Mm. I don't know. Maybe like, and you know, this comes up a bit on this podcast, but like, maybe it's also because we're so starved for stuff like this now that like any even remotely okay version of it, I'm like, this is great, right? Like, I'm like, I just <laughs> eat it up. And I also will say there is a poster for this movie. It's one of the greatest movie posters I've ever seen because wow. it, because it so astutely <laughs> understands its two leads and what's uh, sexy about them. It is literally just their lips and they're like inches away from kissing and you just got two iconic sets of lips. I guess that's true. I didn't think about that. They they both have iconic lips. Yeah. And you, and it's why, obviously it's why he's a great Batman, right? Because it's, that's all, that's the only part that needs to show. But also Um, Gina, but you're right. Gina, she has the most beautiful lips in Hollywood, probably with with that trademark birthmark or uh, beauty mark. Yeah. Yeah. And, Hmm. It's, it's such an amazing poster in that regard just because you're like oh yeah no they get it like because me as a viewer i see that poster and i'm like no i want to see them kiss now like i have to see them kiss because they both have great lips 
And I think to your point, they have really good chemistry. I think the only times that maybe it falters a little bit, and maybe this is what people like, like Ebert was one of the people in his review that kind of dogged on the chemistry. And I think maybe where I could see this is when it gets a little more mannered in terms of like them falling in love where they're like splashing water at each other in the fountain or whatever, whenever it has to resort to that kind of stuff, I can see it feeling a little more forced, but their general like patter I think is wonderful. Like I think their mm -hmm. back and forth is uh is great. Hey, you lied to me. You lied first. First, this is grade school. Actually, it is. You used me. You took the Mexico ditch. You never even heard of the damn ditch till I mentioned it. Oh, of course, excuse me. I didn't realize you had a copyright on a ditch. Great. Tell me what other forces of nature are strictly yours. We are obviously not communicating. I will keep this simple in short syllables. I B, this person in front of you. I do not. Not the international symbol for no. I do not want you to come near me again. Hey, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. So we're still on for midnight? No. You know, to to touch on the poster thing, because as you were telling that, uh, Connor, I, I remembered seeing you you tweeted about this yeah, a couple yeah. days ago. Yeah. And I had the thought, because I saw that tweet and I looked at the poster and I had the thought of, oh yeah, of course. Her lips and his chin. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Because that he's got that, oh, that great butt chin. Yeah. Oh, that Michael Keaton Batman butt chin. Oh, yeah. It's totally <laughs> it's awesome. A funny, it's a funny thing I've never thought about, but you're right. Like, they both have, like, beautiful lower faces. Yeah. It's, it's like a funny thing to think about. But, but and a funny thing, just, just I have to say this. Um, so this is co-produced by Rennie Harlan, who, who Davis was married to at the time. And this right. leads... Directly to a movie that one day will have to be covered on our Rennie Harlan, but I guess it's not a B side. But Cutthroat Island, baby. Oh, yeah. Cut no, we'll do a Gina Davis episode. At Andrew, point, have you sure. ever done Cutthroat on We Hate Movies? We haven't. We oh have not God. touched on it yet. It's yeah. where Matthew Modine goes, God bless. Matthew Modine goes, What if I just played Errol Flynn and people just thought that was fine? Like it's, 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 it's like, a, it's a performance choice that I, I, you have to admire where he's just like, yeah. I'll just literally become Errol Flynn in 1995 and we'll see if it plays. And all of the world but was without like, any no. of like, without any of like the self-effacing charm that say someone like Carrie Elwes does it with, you know what I mean? Like when you right. watch, like when you watch Princess, Princess Bride, Bride yeah. right. Yeah. Or whatever. Um, Without the, you know, charm, athleticism, <laughs> looks, charisma, general, you know, general talent. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, look, I mean, I don't know. I kind of love, I love, what would the, I love Mary to the mob, about, so I don't want to dog on Modine. You got me thinking much. of Modine besides now. Um, Pacific Heights. But yeah, there's not much to say. Right? <laughs> totally. You're right, Pacific Heights. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. There's not much to say about speeches. I mean, I think it's one of those things. Uh, like I said, I think it's basically harmless. I think it's okay. Ernie Hudson is fun in a couple of scenes. Chris Reeve. I think this is like two years before his horrible accident. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're kind of coming to the end of his his. Um, wasn't this was this the same year or was it the the next year that he had um, the Carpenter remake of uh, Village of the Damned? I think because that's think kind of the next year. Yeah, yeah I'm checking now. I'll sort check of now. But I believe too. I believe that's. I'm looking right now. He's, and, but, and to your point earlier, Andrew, like the cast goes deep and like everybody's good. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's not like like Reeve is good and uh, Bonnie Bedelia and the few scenes that she has. Like, 
It, it all there's the weird um because like keaton's character is a former sitcom writer yes and there's the weird thread throughout the movie where you keep seeing the show that he was the writer for yeah and it's it's a fake sitcom starring uh harry Shear and, and Stephen Wright, Wright. which i would watch that show <laughs> i i would totally watch that where they're just it appears to be kind of like a perfect strangers yeah knock exactly. a little bit exactly yeah. um which yeah i'd eat that up i would eat that shit right <laughs> off a plate um village of the dam came out in 95 so you're right about that okay my question about christopher reeve in this movie what is going on with that haircut oh god uh, it's not doing we it's are doing it's like favors. absent of sideburns it kind of is cut so unevenly it looks like a piece i, wonder, I don't know what I this is to supposed to be maybe that's intent. maybe it was a piece yeah maybe i right? could have been maybe it either yeah. was a piece or was intentional you know it's funny you know keaton's got interesting hair speaking of hair you know he's got kind of the perpetual falling away receding hair hair i mean it's like mm -hmm. receding but it's not like receding it's like it's like it's almost like balding with a little bit of recession type of a thing <laughs> it's like that curly hair situation he's yeah. got the 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 spot on the back which yeah. is my calling card these days uh -huh. but then it's also like you've got the front sort of doing a revor a reverse horseshoe situation exactly. he's got, right. it's almost he's got it's like a very intense widow's peak like, yes you know what I mean? that's yeah. like but so, what it is so I watched a few other movies as well uh, in preparation, and I did I did take a peek at First Daughter, directed by Forrest oh. Whitaker, in which he plays President John McKenzie. And um, he, it has to be a wig in that movie because I spent the whole movie looking at his like incredibly full head of hair for his uh, two, <laughs> yeah. 2004 picture, and I was like, Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a well, minute! Wait a minute! No way! Because in Game Six, that's the real deal in Game Six, and so there's there's no way. Hundred percent. He also, I think, is a guy. I think it's sort of directly related to the hair. And my wife just commented on this when we were what we were watching White Noise before we started recording. And he's obviously he's definitely a dude who probably got more attractive as he got older. And I don't know if like. That I don't know if he necessarily keeps getting more attractive, at least as of like now. But it, it there there was like a weird sweet spot where it all kind of met in the middle. And I think Speechless is kind of like right around there, which like works to the movie's benefit, I think, like in terms mm -hmm. of he's definitely like more attractive than he is in any of his like, you know, when he's playing opposite Terry Gar or what, you know, um, but it's a shame because he's about to not be a movie star. For well, that's sort of the weird. Yeah, that's kind of the weird thing, because even in White Noise, he, he, you know, he's like a little half a snack. You're like, you're like, yeah, this is a handsome dude. Like, and I mm -hmm. asked my wife, I was like, is like, is, I was like, is he sexy? Like, what's the verdict on, on Michael <laughs> Keaton? And she was like, he's not like movie star sexy. Like, it's not the, you know, the same way, like most other typical movie stars. But she was like, he's like, if you met him in person and he was like your friend's uncle, you'd be like, yo, your uncle's kind of hot. Like that's that's like the level of attractiveness, according to my wife of, of Michael. <laughs> Keaton. He's hot uncle. Um, hot, hot. I should mention this reminds me, and I, uh, she's gonna kill me if I'm telling this wrong, but I believe through like the marriage of some second cousin or something, my wife is actually related to Michael Keaton. What? Oh my god, I love yeah. it. That's the level of Keaton appreciation in this house. Yeah, I mean, once you found that out, you're like, I gotta marry her. I mean, you know, I, I was, I was like, I gotta lock this down. <laughs> it's it's bringing me one step closer. Um, it's funny because yeah, so like, like we're talking about. 
96, it's multiplicity, which was a big flop at the time, though I guess now you would say it has a bit of a following, kind of. I, um, we just did that recently yeah. oh, did uh, on my program, and it, it, yeah, oof, that movie's tough. It did not age. Yeah at all i recall well, there being yeah. a lot of like yeah like not great gendery things right in that because like, yeah it's like because there when he starts making the clones the first one is like he's a workaholic and you're like okay and then the second <laughs> one is like the one that he makes to be around the house so that one's kind of like a fet a little bit yeah, yeah. and then there's uh the one who they have the it was the trailer line of like well when you make a copy of a copy it's not as sharp and it's like he's like developmentally disabled mm, yeah. and that's the joke of that fourth clone yeah. and or the third clone fourth fourth keaton i guess and it it sucks yeah i mean look ramus dude i mean he he not unlike howard you know, mm-hmm. you got your hits, you got your misses, you know? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And then, so, I mean, what's interesting is we're getting to the the little bit of a break, right? Inventing the Abbots, he's the narrator. I have a soft spot for that movie. We actually talked to uh, Alessandro Novola about that movie because he's in that. Jackie oh, Brown, excellent. he's, that's the cool, he's Ray Nicolette, and Twice. then he's yes. Ray Nicolette yeah. and out of sight. The only time I think that's ever happened where a character... The same character has appeared in two different studios' movies. Uh, that's oh, like, interesting. I don't think that's ever happened before since. Um, is it because he's uncredited and out of sight? Do you think that yes, that had anything to yes, do with it? Yes. So what it is is Soderbergh called Soderbergh called Tarantino and was like, hey, wouldn't this be cool? And I think like Keaton was just like, I'll do it for basically for free. You don't have to credit me. But this, that's a fun thing. And like... Yeah. And somehow it worked. I mean, I guess it's just the power of like Tarantino and, at the time. And they just I gotta say, but like Ray Nicolette for me is like top five Keaton probably. And like, Jackie Brown, yeah, he's great. It's incredible. It's a, such yeah. a tremendous performance. I mean, his reaction to when she's like, "I don't know what happened." You have no, you have no like, idea, right? You don't know. Maybe <laughs> it, like, it, well, because it's he's Keaton, right? He's got that yeah, Keaton energy that you're like. There he is. Like you can when he's doing that scene specifically in that movie, you can smell the uh you want to get nuts? Yeah, let's go. No, that's that's exactly the thing. Nice yeah. fucking model. Like it's yeah, it's all there. <laughs> it's all there. Um now Connor, I know you we gotta take five minutes because our couple of people on Twitter who who are, yes. are, are very nice listeners, they mentioned I can't believe we didn't think about this one. Yeah. The Pittsburgh shot, God bless, desperate <laughs> measures. Yeah. So, from 98 oh my god yeah so Jubin, yeah. have you seen desperate measures ages okay. and ages and ages so ago like I'll, vhs rental i'll take a few minutes it's not technically one of our b-sides but people did request it so i did watch it so i'll speak to it a little bit we also did the listener if you have or haven't listened to this uh we did an episode right i guess this time last year we were talking desperate measures just about because we did an episode on hugh grant last february mm. And we talked about extreme, we talked about measures. extreme measures and we were talking about how when you compare the two plots, extreme measures should have been called desperate measures and desperate <laughs> measures should have been called extreme measures. But basically, desperate measures, Keaton plays a homicidal psychopath g- genius, right, who um, 
He's incarcerated, and Andy Garcia is a San Francisco cop. They shoot Pittsburgh for San Francisco in this movie. It's a they, they, they like split it, right? It's, it's a like, weird. You know, what's, you know what's funny though? I live in Pittsburgh. That's I get it. Because no, it's, but it's, they're, I, they're similar. What's right. weird yeah. is that there isn't any reason for it to be San Francisco. So they should have just it should have just shot in Pittsburgh. Yeah, mm, it yeah. Been, I hate when they well, do that. Yeah. Just change it. Just make the it fina- Pittsburgh. It could be fun. the finale is like on like the bridge that like was on fire the day of my wedding and like people couldn't get to my church like yeah. because of it oh like, my it's like goodness. one of the main bridges downtown yeah and it, so when i didn't rewatch it because it wasn't one of our b-sides but i rewatched the clip where he like surrenders at the yeah, end or whatever yeah, yeah, and i'm like yeah. dude that bridge almost ruined my wedding <laughs> yeah it um i don't know i think if you're a, if you're a fan of keaton it's definitely worth a watch because it is just it's it's he's clearly having fun in the movie so it's like fun to watch him have fun i don't it's it's Barbara Schroeder. Barbara Schroeder, yeah. We've talked about twice actually on this podcast uh with Murder by Numbers, with Murder by Numbers and Oof. and the Meryl yeah. Streep Liam Neeson film Before and After. Yeah, um, e- equally oof. There. Yeah, equally <laughs> oof. No, I all, never all, saw that one. All, I saw Murder by Numbers in theaters though. Yeah, all three That's, movies kind of equally Mur- <laughs> Murder by Numbers speaking of Ebert where Ebert made the very salient point of being like when a monkey attack is used for no reason other than just to like jolt you as an audience member you know you're watching a bad movie right it's like, like when it's like mm-hmm. not played for comedy like yeah, yeah. the yeah. anyway desperate measures it's basically Andy Garcia um plays a San Francisco cop who is on the hunt basically for a donor for his son for bone marrow. Right. And you see, we've all all been, there. yeah, we've all been there. He's seemingly (laughs) exhausted all options. He apparently, according to the movie has made pleas on national television and whatever. And nobody, no compatible donor has been found or whatever. So the op- just this like city cop has access to national televised <laughs> broadcast. It's, it's insane. Well, no, Andrew, in the, in the movie, he's also Andy Garcia. So yeah, he's yeah, a oh, cop. Yeah, yes, oh, okay. he Officer Garcia. <laughs> yes. Got yes. it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he, the opening of the movie, which I will say is pretty cool. Cause it's one of those, like what's happening here. And you're, and it, you don't kind of know what you're watching. Um, the he they break into like the FBI building in in San Francisco and break into like the database of criminals or whatever and they use it as a means of like finding somebody compatible essentially mm-hmm. so you're watching this person who's like Andy Garcia seems like a criminal at first and then you're like oh he's a cop right and it's like so it's kind of immediately provocative which is a fine way to open a movie and then they find that the only compatible donor is michael keaton right and michael keaton like i said is this murderous genius whatever so they go they see him there's a silence of the lambsy meeting between garcia and keaton keaton basically is is sort of like you know hesitant because he's a terrible person and he's like yeah fuck your son i don't care right whatever and um and then realizes that this may be an opportunity for a means of escape. So he finds a way of getting in touch with Garcia again. And he's like, Hey, I'll do it. You know, no worries. And then he orchestrates this escape. It's kind of a, I mean, it's a preposterous escape. It's kind of fun to watch, but he basically gets all the way into the OR and then uses it as a means of, of 
breaking out. And then it kind of becomes like Die Hard in a hospital. Well, it's like, and then mm. it becomes like, it's like Die Hard, but then it's like a 310 to humor relationship yeah, where, then they, where they have to on become each other. cahoots because um, Brian Cox, who's Andy Garcia's superior, is like, obviously then the big priority becomes, okay, we have to kill Keaton, but the problem is you can't kill Keaton because he needs his bone marrow. So Garcia basically has to like go the other way, resort to some desperate measures. And, oh! <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and that's kind Sorry. of no, 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 it's fine. Love it. um, <laughs> and that's that's kind of the movie. Like that's the nature. Well, so of the, yeah. And how much do you think this movie cost, Andrew? How much do you think this movie cost? Nineteen ninety-eight. Nineteen ninety-eight. The the star power with which this film brought. Um, I'm gonna say seventy million dollars. Okay, good guess. It's 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 actually less. It's fifty, but guess how okay. much it, it made? Less than fourteen million. Oof. Oof. Now, what's that funny sucks. is what's funny is obviously a big flop. But it is important to remember at this time, a movie could do business like that and recoup it in home media. And I don't mm-hmm. think this one did. Yeah. But I always think it's funny, like when you look at those some of those returns. You always have to kind of remember that the boom was happening at that time, and it was like yeah. the thing studios really like depended on it's just such a funny totally different time it's well and i think the mid 90s was that the mid to late 90s like that was that moment too as as it pertains to keaton where i feel like directors were trying to figure out the answer to the question i asked before which is like is michael keaton sexy because the opening like the first time you see him in this movie he's like shirtless in his cell like lifting weights but he has like glasses (laughs) so you know that he's like crazy and evil and strong but also smart like i it's like this but it's like clearly like a thirsty shot you know and Um, and that's how kind of, that's sort of how like the movie presents him as obviously this sort of enticing. Yeah. And it's another Zag, another Keaton Zag, you know, playing a killer, you know, and and, um, and it is, I, I, like I said, I think the movie's, it might be worth it. You know, if, if you happen to catch it and it's on, it's worth it just to watch him have a little bit of fun. Otherwise it's not very good. But now aside from the, the serial killer part, it definitely, it's a familiar setup. Uh, it was reminding me of, and I know, I think you guys did a uh, a Denzel episode. I don't know if you mm. covered this one. A total Denzel B side oh, is uh, John Q. Oh, John oh, Q. John no, Q. John yeah, Q. it's a, it's John Q is a better movie because it's frankly not as like extreme. Like the length right. that this movie, which is why this movie should have been called Extreme Measures, <laughs> is that just the lengths that it goes to, you're just kind of like, I thought, and Dan, you just said it, I thought you were gonna say ricochet. Cause this oh, this yeah. definitely feels like it was more of a ricochet because it just goes to these like crazy, crazy places. And I think um I think I mean Ricochet is kind of great though. That's no, the no, it's absolutely it's, great. I mean, I think I, the I, difference between <laughs> yeah. having a handle on like what your movie is, you know, and I think this this seems to me like a movie where there almost were like no bad ideas, and so they like threw a few things at it, and and it all kind of. Fun fact: we mentioned Jack Frost earlier. Um, the actor who plays Andy Garcia's son in this film plays michael keaton's son oh joseph in, cross in jack, oh. in jack frost in the same year wow same year 98 right interesting 
So he's a dude they keep trying to make happen. Joseph he was just Cross, in yeah. Mank recently yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for a brief second. He there. plays, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's like the Charles Letterer. He's like the the nephew of, of yeah. uh, Mary yeah. Davis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is the end for a while. He takes a four year break basically, and then he comes back with. Um, he's in a couple of smaller things, but basically. Oh, four, actually, really, it's more like a six year break. There's a smaller movie in 02, but there's this like straight to DVD action movie called Quicksand that's very bad with Michael Caine. Ooh, it's 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 a fun ass, uh, terrible watch, though. Yes, if you're looking yes, for yes, yes. garbage, the two of them are hamming it up against oh. each other. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's exquisite. I agree. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, wow, they were just like, fuck it. Um, yep. <laughs> And then First Daughter, he's, you know, playing the president. If, you know, the funniest thing about First Daughter, which I forgot, is like it it came out before Chasing Liberty. And they, there was the two <laughs> president daughter movies in the same year. And Chasing Liberty is way better. It's like a fun, not that it's is some that right? masterpiece, but like yeah. the Mandy Moore or Matthew Good Chasing Liberty, I mean, is. is Who's the a, president in that one? A Mark Harmon. Oh, interesting. That's Who, I gotta say that's presidential material right and, there, and, and I hate I hate to disparage our boy Keaton, but it's a better president performance yeah. in, mm-hmm. by Harmon than than Keaton in First Daughter, and then basically it's White Noise, which it's it's so weird to think about this, but this was his like big like return to form. Well, like, so Andrew, yep. you you saw it in theaters, right? So maybe it's so it's like we were not going to spend too much time on it. But yeah. that was a movie. It was a January release. It was total mm-hmm. dump. Total dump. It was like him and De- Deborah Carronger. It, it changed and the it's industry. Like a, it's like shocked. Yeah, yeah, it was a big big hit. Yeah. It's um yeah, the two of them and uh, the fat guy from Ace Ventura 2. Sorry for the yeah, delay, yeah. Ace. Ian Mc- McNeese, McNice. Yeah, yes, wow, nice. Yeah. And I remember when the movie came out, it was a movie that had, and these were still a, a, a little bit rarefied at the time. Um, the the website tie-in that went like balls to the wall for the release of this movie. Yeah, if right. you don't remember what the movie is, it's like Michael Keaton plays a guy who discovers that uh, his dead wife may be trying to contact him uh, through like a white noise on your television, radio noise, static, that kind of stuff. Um, it very much feels like a J-horror remake that wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, great. You, yeah. Wow, that is exactly what it feels right, like. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And and so the the website had this thing where it was like this white noise phenomena, whatever they call it in the film, E-E-E-P. is real. And here's all of these recordings yeah. that you can listen to. And I stayed up for hours oh listening to these God. garbage, like fake, not thinking they were real, but just like, this is so scary. I'm getting yeah. spooked like, out on my the internet. So I will say we did, this movie's very similar to a movie we covered on our Kevin Costner episode called Dragonfly. Ooh, oh, another in God. theaters. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I saw, that I, one's oh, I saw Dragonfly. Very, very well. yeah. similar vibe. I this movie I think is better than Dragonfly. I just rewatched it just kind of just to watch it. And Anybody of note direct Dragonfly? Oh, oh, oh uh, Shady. Hey, yes. No, no. Ooh, yes, oh, that's right. Sorry, Tom Shadyac. I got confused. Tom Shadyac who we talked about Shadyac has like a doctor family. And so he has these two movies that like reflect these weird things where it's like Patch Adams 
mm. and Dragonfly, where he's like, "Doctors, but more," you know. Yeah, like, yeah. And, <laughs> and I just find that to be I, so, so fascinating. This white noise is like a little bit better. Um, I it's better than I remembered. It's still not great. It really does, and this is the the reviews at the time said as much. It really does like shit the bed in its third act. And it's sort of a bummer because the first like two thirds of the movie are at least like eerie and compelling and like yeah. in like an extended Twilight Zone episode kind of way. Like, and they very much steal the look and feel. And I guess this is why more than anything it feels like a J horror mm-hmm. remake. It's the it's the very similar look and feel to the um, the Naomi Watts ring. Yeah, yeah sure. That remake because it's like Pacific Northwest. Yep. Raining all the time. The whole movie's blue. Yeah. You know, a lot of blue tints and everything in the in the color palette. The reason it shits the bed is because you cannot have your protagonist murdered by a ghost tornado. Get out of here. That's how <laughs> okay. the movie ends. No, it's, it's insane. He gets murdered by a ghost tornado, uh, <laughs> sort of also at the hands of a character they reintroduce in the like these final scenes who's like a serial killer who's using the ghosts to like bring i oh yeah i vaguely the, remember that it, thread. the third act is, yeah. a, is a like a nightmare i don't know it's <laughs> insane but i will say it is it's pretty eerie and compelling and in that regard is why it's better than dragonfly because at least just from a genre standpoint it operates a little bit better throughout keaton's okay he actually apparently on the dvd commentary apologizes directly to the director when they get to certain scenes because he's like no nah, i phoned it in oh. here i'm sorry <laughs> oh no yeah which is like Keaton. yeah which i kind of love because he sort of does and doesn't like there are scenes where you're like oh yeah he's like doing a thing or whatever that's so wild that he would be phoning he, it in i mean like it's his movie here's your shot yeah, back and, man and i mean to to his credit as far as like making the decision it makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense because this is also you got to remember listener this is also like peak Shyamalan. Like this is like totally. This is like signs had come out three years prior, right, right after the village right after was the right village, before, which is maybe yeah. when Shyamalan his star started to wane, depending on how you felt about the village. But village mm-hmm. still a hit, right? Like you know, so he's it, this movie's very much in that vein where like every movie needed a twist ending. It needed to be mm-hmm. like somewhat sentimental. There was some sort of a, you know, like a glowering white dude with a dead wife or some shit. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it just like (laughs) it sort of checks all the boxes and it feels very like Shyamalan light in terms of that that time. Um, I was telling Dan, I have a I had a really weird experience watching this because I always thought the ending of this movie was Michael Keaton getting murdered by ghosts in a hospital bed. Oh, okay. And I can't, maybe, listener, if I'm thinking of something else. Well, I, you know, I don't remember this movie, but when you were telling me that, you had me thinking that might have been that Mila Jovovich movie, The Fourth Kind. Remember oh, that movie? Maybe. It, oh, that's a, it's like aliens or something. Yeah, and it's like the, it was like it was like the too late version of what you're talking about, Andrew. Where it was like they tried to do the thing of like this shit happens all the time. Yeah, you guys yeah. don't even know like this right. is fiction, but it's really like it's really like real. You yeah, know? right. Yeah, and um and it was not. I don't think as big of a hit as uh as um as this movie. But I do remember actually weirdly the fourth kind really messing my buddy Jeff up. Like he saw it and he was like, dude, that movie. The fourth kind? Have you seen it? <laughs> Don't watch it. It's so scary. Um, but so just to just to get us to our final movie, yeah. though, um, as much as I love talking about White Noise, obviously, um, is <laughs> this is a movie that I really actually I really like a lot, and it's um, Game Six, which 
is a movie directed by Michael Hoffman, who's kind of the king of making pretty good movies that never actually come out. Um, and we can kind of get into that a little bit, but, um, this movie premiered at Sundance in 2005 and actually ultimately came out in the U S in 06, but really barely came out. It's the only screenplay by Don DeLillo that has ever been produced. And really to hear DeLillo talk about, it's kind of like the only one I think he ever really tried to write. And wow. And there's a great article on the ringer, as a matter of fact, that came out, uh, last year, July of 2020, it's called The Trivia is Exceptional, The Making and Disappearance of Don DeLillo's Game 6, written by Ross Scarano. And I have to, I will link to it in the article. Awesome article about the making and unmaking of this movie. And it's basically, DeLillo wrote the script in 91, and they, at a certain point, Griffin Dunn decided he was going to kind of damned if he, you know, damned, like, damn it, I'm going to make it no matter what type of a thing. And they got Keaton cheap at that point because Keaton was kind of, you know, kind of done to some respect. And, you know, obviously he liked the material. Downey Jr., who knew Michael Hoffman from a couple other movies, is in it as well. As like a theater critic who's like feared by many. And, you know, he has to wear disguises because people want to kill him. And anyway, so I'll just so basically game six, the movie it is set in 1986 on the day of the famous sixth game of the 1986 World Series. So if you know anything about sports, is the famous Bill Buckner game where the Boston Red Sox were up 3-2 to two against the New York Mets. And they were winning, basically going to the final inning. And they blew the lead. And it was a tie game. And then uh, Mookie Wilson hit a little dribbler down the line and it went through Bill Buckner's legs and they lost the game and then went on to lose the next game, game seven, and lost the World Series, thus perpetuating the myth of the Boston Red Sox and the curse of the Bambino and whatnot until they broke it, obviously, in 2004. So this movie is about, it's a one-day movie set during that time period. Um, Keaton plays... Nicky Rogan, who's a successful playwright, though he's very worried about his new play. It's the opening night. Um, the great Terrace Eulin plays the star actor who like can't remember his lines because there's a parasite in it's his su- brain. It's such a good performance. In the There's movie. so yeah. many DeLillo things in this freaking movie that yeah. I forgot. I like, I think I put well, in my letterbox review. It's like reading a DeLillo yeah, novel. It really is. Yeah. Mm. And it's, and it's, that's worth noting because if you don't, I can totally see if you're someone who does not know what that aesthetic is. Right. I could totally see you being like, this is insane. None of these people are real. And that's like, part but that to me is like part of the charm of the movie is that it well it doesn't take yeah. place in like an actual reality it takes place in this sort of warped slightly skewed uh reality well and and what's funny is cosmopolis came out the mm-hmm. book came out in 03 and i and i think it's funny because there's so much about even though he wrote the script before that move that book came out there's so much that you could kind of put next to each other about those two pieces of work, yeah, you know, yeah. because half of this movie takes place in cabs and the cabs never move because the traffic's so bad. And they're talking about the traffic and Keaton's character was talking about, I used to drive a cab and he's like looking at all the names of all the different cabbies. And like, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. And they're the line that Harris Eulin can't remember is this could be it, you know? And it's like all those, the little things, if you've read white noise, 
Speaking of which, funny enough. Oh, oh there you go. I, I should step in and say that's the only Don DeLillo book that I've ever read was well, White Knight. So I'm not and, terribly familiar with this Andrew, work. I'll have you know, I have Underworld sitting in my bookshelf and I've never read a page, but it's sitting there. So if yeah. you ever saw the it, only one of his, while we're confessing, the only one of his that I've ever read is an earlier novel of his called Great Jones Street. Yep. Yeah, yep, um, yep. which is is it because is it because we worked two blocks away from Great Jones Street for <laughs> five no, years? No joke. Yes, I'm not even no. joking. Like it's it, it. I didn't like pick the book out. I think my old roommate had had it. Every and, every time and, I would go to pick up a car uh, cargo van or yeah a cargo van from that spot yeah. where I was on Great Jones, I would walk. I would walk past it and I would look at that street and I'd be like, I should read that book one day. No, I literally, it's, 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 only, it's literally only because like my, my old roommate was a Don DeLillo fan and had it when he moved out, he like left a bunch of his books and I didn't even like, I only thing I knew about DeLillo was I like at the time, I think Cosmopolis had like come out. So I knew, you know, I knew who he was sort of loosely yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to read that. Cause I used to walk by there all the time. Uh, it's a pretty yeah. good book. I enjoyed it. Yeah. The only two I've read, um, are Cosmopolis and white noise. Um, and, uh, but so what do you guys think? I mean, I'm a big fan of this one, but like we said, it kind of got buried. It's barely 80 minutes. Um, you know, you can, it's really hard to even find it. It was hard for us to even find it for this podcast. Um, Andrew, start with you. What are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, my history with this movie is interesting history. That's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> All to say, I uh, I tried to watch it one time, like when it came out on DVD, uh, and um, had uh, what I'll call a green out situation. And I, so I didn't really remember much of the movie. Um, I remembered like him sitting in taxi cabs, and that was kind of it. Right, right. Um, but I was like genuinely, like pleasantly surprised with this movie and liked it way more than I ever thought I would. I mean, it's a movie that, I guess what you were saying about it, um, just how it portrays New York feels very like DeLillo's writing. I mean, I love that uh, it feels like, at, at the same time, it feels both like New York and like a slightly off like fantasy land New York. Mm. I mean, because part of it is he spends the whole movie literally just going across town. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's, he starts he he has this gorgeous I mean, my God, the view of the U.N. and the East River and looking into L.I.C., you know, so like he starts literally at one river and moves his way to the the other one. And so I'm a sucker for contained timeline films. Same. Yeah. Um, you know, so so that was great. The fact that we're filming in in New York, it seemed like for most of it. Yep. Um was was really great. And yeah, I just I, I love the smallness of it, but it also feels like that that real like mid aughts American indie heyday, you know, where you could you could you I have memories of going to see movies like this, right? Like downtown or even like back when I was growing up uh, in upstate New York in high school, going to the indie theater there and just like seeing these kinds of very small but like kind of offbeat drama comedies. And the thing that I really love about this movie, it's a movie that, um, you know, like you said, it takes place inside the New York theater world. Um, and in, in its own way, sort of walks and talks like a play. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. But the film is still incredibly cinematic because one of my guaranteed red flag anytime, uh, is when a film is adapted from a play and it just feels like you may as well have propped up three cameras in a theater and film the stage thing. Sure, yeah. sure. Right. Um, like for the, for as great as the performances are in something like fences, mm. it's just a play. 
right? Sure, and, let's, sure. and then for me, that aesthetic doesn't normally work, but it worked really nicely because it's not the exact same thing. Uh, it's not a one-to-one as to what I'm sort of kvetching about, but like it still had a very theatrical feel to it. I, I could totally see myself being downtown watching, you know, the Game 6 play adaptation right totally, so totally. you know movie to to stage instead this is usually uh, usually the other way um but yeah i i was so pleasantly surprised by this movie what were you con yeah same um it it's funny because i just yeah once you get i think with the delillo of it all it's it clicks for me um i i was looking at some of the old reviews and uh, I think Leonard Malton at the time kind of gave it a little bit of shit because it not it, I think he I think he was generally positive on it, but sort of just this side of positive on it. And he had one of the things he had kind of griped about was he's like, it's very much like a writer's movie. Right. Like so mm-hmm. and just in the manner of the way people talk and things like that. And I think that's what lends itself to what you're talking about, Andrew, in terms of it feeling like a play. And right. I think if that's a vibe you can get with and that's something you can at least just want to sit down and enjoy, I, I think it works. I think it also works because the movie's not too long, right? It like it, it yep. all mo- like even the things that feel like they might seem indulgent. It's like, well, we're not like, you know, just yeah, ha- have the have the newscast helicopter newscaster traffic guy wax philosophic about random things and, and stuff like that. Right. Like so there are those little things that that put it in that New York fantasy land that I think help really well. I also think in a meta way, Griffin Dunn helps really well because I feel like Big I time. think about after hours and like Griffin Dunn mm-hmm. basically plays a playwright friend of Michael Keaton. He's so he's so funny in this movie. I, everybody's yeah. everybody's good in this when movie. When he's like that, quoting back the review. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. And Gr- so Griffin Dunn is basically a playwright friend of Michael Keaton's who as Keaton is preparing for this opening night that everyone tells him is like you know, you get the idea that he's like successful and generally talented, but that this is like the best thing he's ever written. And it's probably his it's going to be his like one big shot at like, you know, actual huge success and creating something great. Um, And he sees Griffin Dunn as kind of this cautionary tale because Griffin's done. Griffin Dunn's life literally fell apart over one review from the Robert Downey Jr. character. Um, and it all, I just, I, again, from a meta standpoint, it just works so well to me because it also could just be Griffin done the morning after, after hours. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, he's just like, <laughs> he's lived a night in this fantasy New York that's like destroyed his life. But, uh, it's Keaton is so good in it because it's kind of funny and I want to talk a little bit. And we don't have to pivot directly to this movie, but I want to talk a little bit about the Birdman in the room sure. because this movie feels to me so much like a like you could program them to be, them together. You know, like they're mm-hmm. very, very similar movies, both in terms of plot and general idea of New York and like relationship between artist and critic and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this movie's better than Birdman, in my opinion. But very similar things, and it's and you're and you're right with the critic element too. It's funny. It's, it's true. No, no, no. It's 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 you know, and I I like I like Birdman fine. I think that I think a lot of people have soured on that movie since its release or whatever. But I I do like that movie fine enough. But this I think just handles everything that it handles a lot of the same things with I think. And maybe only also because it's 80 some odd minutes, right? So it's it 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 doesn't overstay its welcome. But 
it, it Keaton gets to give a similar kind of performance that maybe doesn't get as manic as and chaotic as he does in Birdman, which is fun to watch for sure. Um, it's a lot more restrained and he feels a little bit more like a, like a real dude. Uh, and, but still gets to have those like, let's get nuts moments, particularly in the final moments of the movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, this movie really kind of took me by surprise and I was quite, uh, I was quite charmed by it. Um, the, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, go ahead. Like, um, Sorry, but just the the Griffin Dunness of it all. You know, the thing is, I I recently only, I mean, it was definitely in quarantine, which is now a year, so that's like a a bad metric. I don't know, like a couple months ago, mm. uh, I watched After Hours for the first time. Mm. Uh, oh, I was wow, trying okay. to like What'd cover up some. Loved it, yeah. absolutely. Oh, loved and it. we should say Catherine O'Hara is in this movie, right? Too. Who's yes. Also so that's another hours. nice connection. Yeah. But like the atmosphere that Scorsese creates in that movie, that's it. It felt almost identical here that mm -hmm. like it's new york but something is just the littlest bit off right and like even with the the character um in this movie played by which character is it i was trying to oh the the bb newerth character oh, yeah, the yeah, joanna yeah, right. born yeah. theater you know producer kind of character gave off like that character could be in the world of after hours like it felt like very shared like a shared cinematic space right there cinematic universe if you will <laughs> well, I, it's funny because as we're talking about all what if movies, there was a universe of cinema <laughs> as we're talking about this movie in the in this context i feel like what we're gonna see at jacob burns at some point is a after hours the squeeze game six oh god uh triple feature <laughs> at some point of off kilter uh off kilter askew but, new york you know we we joke <laughs> but you're totally right like cosmopolis which is written and directed by cronenberg starring robert pattinson which came out after this um eric packer who's the character in cosmopolis could that limo could drive mm -hmm. past Nikki Rogan in this movie, yes. right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a very totally. similar, you know, uptown, downtown, same New York, you know, Patrick Bateman's in the sky. You know, it's like that type of a, yep. of a vibe, which I think is really nice. And, you know, young Ari Grainer, who does pretty good work as Nikki Rogan's daughter, Michael Keane's mm -hmm. daughter. Who's, who's the um, Emma Stone character from, from exactly. Birdman. Like it's, yes, like, oh, there's, big time. There are so many. Anyway, go on. Keep going. <laughs> no, but so I want, I, I, I mentioned this. I just want to uh, put a button on this. I mentioned this earlier. So Michael Hoffman, who we've talked about a bit on this podcast because he's made a few B-sides, kind of an underrated filmmaker who you kind of he's not a name you would necessarily know but he did mm -hmm. some kind of good movies as a younger filmmaker he did some girls with patrick dempsey which is pretty good he did soap dish which is like a very cult fun oh, movie. sure he did yeah. one, one, one fine day which is a movie i kind of have a soft spot for also a one day in new york movie with clooney and uh, uh Michelle Pfeiffer, oh, he did really restoration nice. yeah so he did restoration right. which is uh, also danny jr that movie kind of got a little dumped and then what i had mentioned before is on two separate occasions and really it's actually three actually He's made movies that have basically gotten disappeared. And so this one, Game 6, um, which if you read the Ross Cron article, you can kind of read about how that happened. And then he did the remake of Gambit with Colin yeah. Firth, which got totally buried um, with, I believe, also Cameron Diaz yeah. in that. And then 
and I'm just going to triple check this. He, I think, did a movie called Gore, which is a Gorvy doll, um, a Gorvy doll movie in which Kevin Spacey. Boop. I'm going yeah. to have to censor oh, no. that out now. Dude. Plays <laughs> Gorvy doll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking now at I'm it remembering right now, this. And it got, yep. and it's a young man spends a summer in Italy where he meets his idol, Gorvy doll, who teaches him about life, love, and politics. <laughs> yeah. And, <Uh-oh>. and, um, <laughs> obviously I don't know if it'll ever come out because of everything that happened. So like three separate times, Michael Hoffman, poor Michael and, Hoffman, like makes these movies. They just could get like swallowed by different and circumstances. Gr- Griffin Dunn is in that one too, apparently. Yeah. Um, Ooh, yeah. Michael Stuhlbarg. Yeah. Interesting. Dang. He also directed in 2002 The Emperor's Club, which actually I have a big soft spot for because it's I, yeah. Yeah, I do too, but it has like nothing to do with the motion picture itself. It was a weird like the renting of the film, the circumstances were like a friend of mine had just had his wisdom teeth out and was super like, you know, just totally cocked up on drugs. And it was like, we got to rent a movie. Let's go rent a movie. And this kid, like, he literally fell asleep on the floor in Blockbuster. But also a buddy of ours, because they they shot uh, the movie, a good chunk of it, in upstate New York at a... Oh, yeah. Where, um, where do you, you remember where? where you, yeah. I... It's in, um, I guess, technically, it's probably the city of Troy. It okay, was a... Yeah. It's a... It's, at the time, anyway, I don't know what their deal is these days. It, it was a school called Emma Willard. It was like an all-girls private school. Um, and a, a buddy of ours was an extra in the movie and had some story about, like, Emil Hirsch was, like, kind of roughing up, like, some other younger kid on the set, like, oh, being no. a jerk to him. That and, tracks. like, my, my buddy stepped in and then, like, totally got asked to leave the movie. Oh, my God. But he God. was just one of the kids wearing a red jacket, you know, standing behind Emil Hirsch. And this dude was, like kind of being shitty to little kids what? yeah i mean that's it's not a particularly memorable movie but it, i have a similar it's funny that you the, the personal anecdote I, I i have a similar thing which is like my grandfather at the time um who's like you know just a very traditional dude what have you he like really loved that movie and mm. i think he loved it because basically that movie's it's like the opposite of Dead Poets Society, where it's like at the end of Dead Poets, tragedy happens, but you're meant to be like, these kids have been changed by this educator, and that is good. And this movie is basically like, some people won't change no matter how much they're educated. <laughs> right. And I like that. I like that ending, and I think it's an interesting kind of subversive idea. And mm-hmm. I think my grandfather liked it because he was kind of a more conservative <laughs> dude who's probably like, yeah, you see, not much you could do, you know? <laughs> and so I, I have this memory of liking it because he liked it basically. <laughs> and I think also we knew it filmed upstate. Like I'm from upstate as well. And I feel like there was that type mm-hmm. of like, oh yeah, well that's cool. You know? And oh I love, yeah. And I love Did Kevin you know Klein. so-and-so's cousin is in the emperor's club? Yeah. You know, he, <laughs> plays, Absolutely. The, he plays the emperor in the movie. Do you know that? <laughs> also Harris Yulin in that movie. I hey think now, uh, hey Hoffman's got a little relationation with this guy Love between him and Griffin Dunn must be a little buddy, sir. Yeah, a little, yeah. little party, little party posse. Um, I, you know, so, but I guess just bring it back to game six. I think, yeah. Talking about the chaos of Keaton, obviously DeLillo works. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think we've kind of said that like DeLillo operates in he, his whole idea to put a, to put a kind of a, his, 
post, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what's it's post something, his writing style. Um, anyway, postmodernist. You would call it like, how does everybody not look around and say, isn't this also fucking insane? Sure. Is the style by which he writes, right? You know, the, airborne, the airborne toxic event being the primary example in white noise what have you. Yeah. And so game six really captures that, I think, in a beautiful way. And Keen is like the perfect conduit because he that's his whole kind of a thing. He's like, hey, what if I was a normal guy, but also isn't life crazy? And well, I'm reacting to that. So yeah. it's interesting. And yeah. and it's well, and, and yeah, and the idea that like you're two steps away from being a crazy person because it's exactly, exactly. crazy, yeah. right? And that's a really good point in terms of like why he's perfect for it. But the other thing, and I don't, well, you, listener, if you can get your hands on it, you should watch this movie. It's very good. So I don't think we should necessarily spoil the ending per se. But well, I, the ball does go through Buckner's legs. Well, yes, so. they lose. They lose the game. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Um, but I think, and I, I think part of the reason I enjoy this more than something like. Birdman, given their similarities in terms of the kind of story they're trying to tell, is it finds a way to even through the the isn't life crazy Delillo of it all, they find it like this movie finds a way to still feel kind of like hopeful and wholesome a little bit, which yeah. I really appreciated. Like it doesn't try to necessarily solve direct problems and or anything like that, but it's still just like it finds like the smaller things that you're like, oh, well, we got that. And it, and that's something that I think I, I really liked and appreciated. Um, the other thing too, with Keaton being able to channel that, I think that's, I think that's crucial, right? Is like finding someone who, who has these little moments. There's that, there is that great moment with, I'm forgetting his name. We just said his name, uh, Harris Yulin. Harris Yulin. Uh, yeah. Um, where he's trying to get him to remember his line and he can't. And and Keaton gives this sort of look that's like he's simultaneously maddened and frustrated, but like also saddened and like is trying to kind of like gently get it out of him, you know? And then it, it ultimately, they sort of get there for a second. Um, and it's just this really finely tuned performance that I like, it's got to be one of his best, I think. I think what is sort of connecting those two things that you're talking about is the fact that this movie is completely absent of melodrama. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it has its like chunkier dramatic scenes, sure. but like it never slips into melodrama. I mean, think about the conclusion of this movie, right? Yeah. I, I love the final sequence in this movie. He goes, he finds RDJ's address, yeah. right? He goes there with the gun. Yeah. His daughter is there, you know, hooking up with him. RDJ looking like senior citizen Edward Scissorhands in that costume. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the way that it all just sort of concludes in this very sort of like watching a wave just gently yeah. crest instead of like slam into the beach mm -hmm. and, and them like, you know, sort of oddly bonding over the fact that they're both tortured Red Sox fans. Yeah. I thought was so great. Well, yeah. And it doesn't, it capture like DeLillo gave an interview in quarantine and he talked about, you know, his baseball fandom. He's a pretty famous baseball fan himself. And like, I, what I love about this movie, because as a big basketball fan myself, um, I, it's a weird mixed world of like, I work in film. I love film. Film's my first love, bop, 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 but I love the NBA. And you'll talk to people who will say the thing to you of like, 
oh, like sports, like you're a grown man who watches sports. Like what, you know, oh, like I don't get the fandom. And it's always funny where I'm like, well, look, dude, it's the same as liking Marvel movies. It's the same as liking, you know, books. It's the same as liking any sort of art form. Like you got to think of it like that. It's like, you know, does the obsession and, and overly like insanity that some people allow like anything, right? It's certain it can get to that degree. But that final scene does really encapsulate that thing of like, there can be a bonding mm -hmm. over those mm -hmm. things. And the same way you could bond over Dungeons and Dragons or, yeah. you know, I, Captain America yeah. or whatever. And even, you know? and even the, uh, we should also note, obviously, it's Batman and Iron Man to that point. But um, yes, Bonnie, yes. but but anyway, to uh, to go away from that quickly, the it's the two rich vigilante billionaires. Yeah, it's the two billionaire right. uh, superheroes. Um, <laughs> but even the, the uh, Keaton, before you even get to that moment, Keaton has the wonderful monologue in the restaurant where all of the workers are like on their break and they're all Mets fans. And it's a really great, I'm not like a gigantic sports fan. I am kind of a fair weather fan. Like I grew up in a, in a Mets household type thing. Mm -hmm. And I even remember feeling like, oh, there's, this is not the same thing though. And like, that's what that whole monologue is where it's like, they kind of make a comment or they're commenting on like, oh, it's finally our shot. Normally we suck. Like, this is so great. Blah, 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 blah. And that's a Mets fan, frankly, anytime the Mets do well. Right. Cause it's like, we're just, mm -hmm. you know, we're used to them being shitty. We're not shitty. It's a good year, whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's that amazing monologue where he's like, nah, being a Red Sox fan is different. Cause like any other team that loses regularly, they just kind of lose. Right. But no one loses like the Red Sox lose in like a spectacular and haunting, miserable mm. fashion. Pitched a beautiful game last time. And plus, Daryl, he's due for a big game. Of course. I hate the Mets. No. How come? I can't respect them. Because when the Mets lose, they just lose. It's a flat feeling. There's nothing there. And the Red Sox. Now here, we have a rich history. Really fascinating ways to lose a crucial game. You know what I mean? Defeats that just keep you awake at night. They, they pound in your head like the hammer of fate. Yeah, you can analyze the Red Sox game day and night for a month and still uncover really complex layers of feelings. Feelings you didn't even know you were capable of having. Yeah. Kind of pain has a memory all of its own. It is this beautiful thing because it's just a it it's so in the spirit. Like this movie talking about these things in this context could not be about any other underdog moment in sports history, right? It needs to be about this specific moment because it is so that moment brings the socks of it all into the the thesis of the movie of like why do we do this to ourselves mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. like just in terms yeah. of existence and life and like sitting in traffic and breathing in the smoke and the asbestos coming out of the sewer and all this shit right like why do we do this to ourselves but there's like something weirdly ma you know masochistic about the nature of of all of it collectively and using the sort of socks as a microcosm for that, I think is like, and not in a cutesy way, but in like a really sort of existential <laughs> despair kind of way, I think is brilliant. 
And the character is giving that monologue before one of the greatest Red Sox bumbles in the history, history of right. the sport. Like it hasn't even happened yet. And he's and yeah. that's what I think is is a really interesting thing for me with this movie is that whole scene where he's in, I don't know why, cause it's, it's definitely not supposed to be this bar, but the set that they were using here was giving me a real Pete's tavern vibe sure. oh and just God. made me yeah. miss yeah. like going downtown so bad. Yeah. Um, you know, as the squeeze did also, I should say mm -hmm. made me miss uh, New York, but um, you know, everybody, you know, and I'm not everybody I'm being hyperbolic, but you know, if you're in the sports world at all, the baseball world, you've heard of the Buckner bobble. You know how that game ends, right? You know, or you're just like a bad lieutenant fan and you know how that game ends. But like <laughs> it's um it's a credit to the film that like that entire environment that they make up in that bar scene where they're watching, you know, the titular game six. And you still feel that, like, oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. You know, it is constructed so well yeah. that, you know, by the time this movie came out, you know, it was like a 25-year-old error uh, or, or more at that point, a 30-year-old error almost. And you know how the game turns out, but at the same time, you're, like, on the edge of your and, seat. Like, you're you're feeling the romanticization of baseball in that moment, too. And there's, like, just the, there's the grandmother cabbie that he kind of ropes yes. into watching it with him with her grandson, um, who is also pops up as the kid in... Um, I noticed him. He's uh, he's the kid that Clive Owen talks to in the vault in Inside Man. Oh, uh, that's they, definitely right. Yeah, that was it? Your, your violent video games. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Um, but that whole scene, like, and pos like positioning those characters almost as his, I'm going to get this wrong. So whatever, but like as his like id ego, like the, the negotiation that a fan does with themselves when something like that starts to happen, where like, there's the one, you know, there's like the walk and then there, and then they get another base and another, you know, and you're kind of like, he's like slowly watching it, like fall apart. And they're constantly mm -hmm. like, no, it's, it hasn't fallen apart yet. Like there are more innings or whatever. And then the idea that like you as a fan, you you hold on to like whatever that shred is. You're like, eh, maybe when even though in your heart, you know that it's over and it's something that obviously RDJ kind of capitalizes on later where he's like, look, if they lost tonight, they're going to lose tomorrow. Right. There's no. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's and we have to say it's so funny that this movie comes out when it does not unlike Fever Pitch the remake with Jimmy Fallon sure. because they, right. the Red Sox win in 04. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's so funny where these two very Red Sox focused pictures that are obviously incredibly different um, movies, the one, the Fairley brothers and then Michael Hoffman. Um, but how they're both these movies that are artifacts by the time they come out, because the yeah. Red Sox have the most incredible comeback and the most curse reversing thing in the history of sports in 04 when they be, they come back to against the Yankees after being down 3-0, which I remember yeah. as as a once Yankees fan, I remember mm -hmm. vividly. Um oh, and, yeah. and being very sad about that. Um but so this is certainly the best of the three that we've talked about. And then like just kind of as we approach, you know, the present with Keaton, we should just say he becomes kind of the gentleman character actor after yeah. this, right? He's he's in you know, he does a voice for cars. He he directs a movie called The Merry Gentleman, which we talked about doing, but frankly, I'm glad we didn't do. He directs it because the director, the writer was gonna direct and he hurt himself. He had an accident like mm. two days, two weeks before shooting. So Keaton was looking to direct at that moment and decided he would just take over. And the obviously the the producers, the financiers said that was fine. It's a fairly uninteresting movie, unfortunately. Um 
he and it's kind of the opposite of the chaos thing it's like he's playing very dour yeah, and like kind of it, it just kind of it saps everything that we love about Keaton out of it. Um, Post grad, he's a dad. I actually just watched that. Not not particularly uh, interesting. The other guys, oh, amazing comedic performance. Yeah, incredible. Which yeah, I'll, I'll put a, probably a link to the compilation of his like uh, five uh, five minutes um, in in the article because that's just some of the funny stuff you'll see. He's so good. And then it's like, and then you got to run to like, he's like. A weird tech guy in RoboCop. He's like the weird announcer, Need for Speed. Birdman happens, and he obviously that's a huge moment for him. Uh, he almost wins the Oscar. He loses to Eddie Redmayne, who I mean, in fairness, the iconic Eddie Redmayne performance in uh, <laughs> The Theory of Everything. We all remember that. <laughs> Professor, I- <laughs> that's my impression of him in that movie. That iconic <laughs> Theory of Everything performance. Um. And then Spotlight, he's in it. Very, yep. very impressive little role. The founder kind of got lost. Kind of a good performance that gets lost in a movie where they kind of approach it the wrong way. They're like, what if we made the obvious villain the anti-hero? And you kind of go like, what, well. What's a little weird, too, is I feel like <laughs> Keaton in that movie knows that he's the villain, but the movie doesn't know that he's the Like John Lee Hancock is like maybe trying to do something that Keaton's not trying to do a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then like Homecoming, he's great, sure. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but he's very fun in that. Um, and then Dumbo, with I, Dumbo, he gets, I think uh, is very good in that. D- movie. Dumbo gets hated on a lot, and I get why. But him and Devito, yeah, Batman Returns reunion along with Burton, those are some great scenes. Actually. Yeah, no, he's. I think he and Devito are the are the yeah. re- are the reason to watch that movie. What do you um, think? What do you think, Andrew? Do you have any? I'm kind of. I was just gonna say, I'm kind of like checked out of modern tim burton i did see yeah i mean i I saw dark shadows which i I actually liked i thought that was okay um but like i didn't see any of the alice in wonderland nonsense actually the funny thing is the only selling point as i saw it with dumbo was that the two of them reunited in a movie well i was like oh cool like batman the penguin back okay i remember going to see that um when you know when when it came out or whatever very it's kind of the same way like very reluctantly mm-hmm. as you mentioned with kind of the beetlejuice like i was a tim burton kid like i loved all those movies i think obviously batman was a big part of that but like the so there's always the part of me that thinks like eh, maybe he'll do another one that'll just be amazing again right like right. and and what's sad what's almost both thrilling and frustrating about dumbo um is that Keaton gives you these moments that you're like, oh, I'm watching a good Tim Burton movie right now. And then uh-huh. and then obviously the rest of it is, you know, is, <laughs> is what you would expect. But um, yeah, I think also with the founder, um, another reason that's I mean, because that's like a, that's a buried B-side for sure. That was, if I'm remembering right, another botched Weinstein rollout. That's exactly that was, what it was. The yeah. Weinstein company had that movie and it was just like a I remember like sort of possibly even after it had been released like a while after getting like a sales thing like hey any interest in coming in with the founder and it's like no absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he and he he plays you know i mean i it might be worth a look he plays ray Kroc, who's basically the right. guy that made mcdonald's what it is today for better or worse and obviously the movie kind of explores that but it's like it's just one of those movies like ray Kroc was a piece of shit <laughs> like you know like you know and, and he, he he was he was a visionary for sure but it's like the movie kind of wants you to be like visionary right and you're like yeah but 
horrible, <laughs> right? And, right? And the movie doesn't quite tap into What the I would horrible. recommend, listener, frankly, instead of watching The Founder, is there's a really, really great uh, Stuff You Should Know episode. Um, oh, really? If, if anybody listens to that podcast, um, they do a really good deep dive into kind of the history of McDonald's. And it's, Ooh. I think because it's obviously a little that's bit a good, more, that's a good podcast. Yeah. yeah it's, and maybe just cause it's obviously, it's not a movie. So it's a little bit more like, Hey, here's what happened. Right. And it's, so it's a little, it gets a chance to maybe be a little bit more honest about what Dan's talking about. Right. It doesn't need to take yeah. a point of view, but it is a good, I mean, it's, I, you know, I don't blame anybody involved in the founder for trying to make that movie. It's a, it's, it's, it's worthy of a movie. He's an interesting dude for all the reasons Dan just mentioned. And I think, yeah, I think, I think Keaton hits the mark, but I think John Lee Hancock kind of just misses um, it. So as we come to the end, what do we? So Keaton, he's got a movie called Worth that hasn't come out yet. It's an okay picture. Sarah Colangelo, I think, directed it. Um, it'll come out this year as twenty twenty one. As you're listening, it's about the he plays Kenneth Feinberg, who had to account for the essentially the insurance of the lives lost in nine eleven. And like, oh yeah, it's it's a uh it, it's an interesting topic him and stanley tucci among others and that one um i know that movie was that it, it must have been was it sundance the, like two was years it ago? sundance 2020 or was it 2019 yeah no it was 2020 does I, anybody have that movie is it with a it u.s just, distributor it just got i think it just got picked up to be distributed like like literally this early this year oh, because okay. i remember reading about it being like oh, okay it's finally coming out yeah, release date set for September on Netflix. Oh. So I don't know if Netflix bought it or if it's just a but um, I'd be curious to see what if what kind of play if any. But it's similar. It's like a not to this is a lazy comp, but it's it there's a spotlight element to it. It's about the 9/11 victim compensation fund which you can read about. So um you can read my review. Um I I wrote the review for the film stage. I'll I'll link to it in the in the article, but um and then he's in like an action movie directed by Martin Campbell, which is coming out at some point. So he's got stuff, nothing like obviously Morbius he's in, I guess, which, okay. Um, he's apparently, I, you know, I haven't bothered because there's just only so much time mm -hmm. in a person's life. The Sorkin, you about to go Sorkin? Yeah, the trial yeah. of the Chicago 7. Yeah, and he, I've just, yeah. I can't. Yeah. I don't know. He's you know? Uh, He's good. He's in like two scenes. It's like... So he's not like a judge or something. He's the substantial? Um, I think he's the AG. I want to say okay, uh, Ramsey Clark, who I believe in real life was the Attorney General. Yes, um, which hey man, it's Sorkin. You know, hey, your Sorkin, yeah. your Sorkin may vary. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, <laughs> your Sorkin. I may just vary. see uh, Sasha Cohen dressed up with that wig, Abby and I'm Hoffman, like, I, yeah. I can't. I can't do that. <laughs> I, was it was it Angie Han? Somebody I can't. One of our one of our Twitter follows. They uh, posted about. Um, I think it's Angie posted about um, the the crazy age differences in the trial of Chicago Seven, where it's like Ramsey Clark was like forty two, Michael Keaton's like sixty nine. <laughs> like yeah. Abby Abby Hoffman was you know like barely thirty. Sasha Baron Cohen's in his forties or whatever. Like, oh, so man. there's some of that in that movie, which you know <laughs> I I don't that stuff doesn't bother me as much as uh, some other people, but but uh, it's funny. It nevertheless is funny. I mean, so what do you, Andrew Keaton? What's yeah. like a dream thing to see from Keaton as we wrap up? What's a dream? <sighs> Gee, you know, it's interesting. I feel like if he kept up these, you know, 
little tiny game six type things that are mm. like small movies, but are interesting movies. I would love that. I mean, him going back to genre stuff like white noise. Eh, I don't think that he's now sort of too old for the family comedy route. And I just like dread the day that he possibly falls into like silly grandpa movies. Mm. Cause that's a genre that just needs to be, wiped off the face of the earth right. and so like if he goes that route that's unfortunate and you know i guess the the biggest thing that we haven't really talked about but like him maybe returning as batman yeah. in this flash movie that's oh, sort of right. like the biggest that's question right. mark because i feel like if that goes through like if and when or whatever like that's gonna be a big you know pointing him in places definitely more than the the spider-man movie did sure sure yeah, I think I think it's interesting you mentioned the comedy thing because in my brain, what, like when in when I watched Night Shift and when I watched uh, Mr. Mom or rewatched Mr. Mom and was thinking about the other guys, I think I w I would be down to see him lead a good comedy, but like good being the very operative word that like but i think and what a comedy for adults yeah, specifically yeah, and, I, and i think what you're talking about is probably the more likely thing that would happen which would be unfortunate um but i do think like if you could like here's the thing actually if i could get him leading in an adam mckay movie in as opposed to someone like a Christian Bale in a vice, you know, or who's the mm -hmm. I can't think of the gentleman who did like in the loop and um, I mean, Armando, Armando yeah, Giannucci. Yeah, like, Giannucci, yeah. like getting him in one of those movies as the lead, some kind of like political mm -hmm. satire, but where he can still have like that other guy's comedy Keaton energy. Yeah. Like, I think he would fucking crush yeah, and that would be great because we got to get Ianucci back to making movies with profanity in them. That David Copperfield, <laughs> not a fan. I couldn't even when I saw that at Toronto, I had no idea that it was like way more just like a a straighter adaptation. Yeah. I was like, oh man, finally this Dickensian adaptation. Dev Patel's going to be slinging fuck all over the place, and I just watched that movie like. All right, if I had any grandmothers left, they would love this. <laughs> you know, it was like such a disappointment, you know? Yeah, I totally agree with you, actually. I totally agree with you. <laughs> but if he did, a thing in the comedy, too, like if he did, so can you imagine him now doing something as wacky as Johnny Dangerously? Oh, yeah. I oh my God, love I love that movie. Yeah, that's right? kind of my point. Like, yeah, like put him in that yeah. mode. But and, I, I love Johnny I think the only, I think the only mode where it would work would be some kind of a, a satirical thing because yeah because what you're talking about the the alternative would just be him kind of in that mode but in a like a raunchy broad whatever kind of probably slightly less uh less interesting way but i think to get him in in that mode would be and i think is weirdly like what the more we talk about it like that feels like a real thing that could happen right because it mm -hmm. like seems like a thing that would meld both his talents and his current sensibilities in terms of like the roles that he's picking so if you right. if you get him as like your peter capaldi or your you know or your jason isaacs from uh from death of stalin or death something stalin, like that yeah. like uh i think I think you've got gold on your hands, probably. And you know he could hit 
it out of the park with a screenplay like that. Yeah. He could do that rapid fire dialogue yeah. that Iannucci just crafts it's, so well. It's the yeah. Jackie Brown yeah. moment. That totally. Yep. It's, uh, That's on my rewatch docket now. Yeah. So officially, oh. I think before um, before Once Upon a Time, you know, that that had been sitting as my favorite QT. It's, and it's definitely I, I just mine, absolutely sure. love that movie. It's so, yeah, yeah. It's my, yeah, it's mine for sure. That yeah. movie fucking rules. Yeah. Andrew, yeah. so just remind us, where can we find you and your work as we as we wrap up here? For sure. Yeah. So every uh, Tuesday, we got a, a free episodes on our main feed, which, you know, you can find anywhere podcasts are delivered um, or just head over to whmpodcast.com or for more stuff. Um, you know, we produce a ton of shows uh, for our Patreon, too. So you can go to uh, patreon.com slash we hate movies um, month to month. We've got tons and tons of, of bonus stuff on there uh, that usually releases on Thursdays of, of each week. So couple places and you know if you want to hit me up on twitter at jupin j-u-p-i-n simple and i gotta tell you if i ever get on we ate movies i can't wait to play the vhs uh (laughs) the trailer uh, trailer game game, man i love that game if it's any indication of uh how badly you guys always whooped us on the cinephile game night (laughs) you will add some uh you will add some points to the the guest roster for sure to get the other (laughs) the bit the the bit of steve being so like serious about it is like, oh, like yeah. is the best i love it yeah. he know. i mean he knows it's his it's, opportunity it's so to spin good. off he knows <laughs> what's <laughs> up we'll he have, knows what we'll he's have doing to get uh, all your other cohorts on here at some point for sure for we sure, couldn't sure. bring you all on at the same time we wouldn't have gotten anything done i don't think it would have been chaos it would have been four hours of us saying nothing yeah, yeah. Exactly. um <laughs> but thank you so much for uh for taking the time and joining us it's been it's been wonderful having you and it's been super cool hanging out. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, and Dan, where can people find you? Oh, you know, at DJ Mecca on Twitter, on at the film stage. I just uh, did a review for Crisis, the opioid uh, crisis epic movie by Nicholas Jarecki, starring Army Hammer, who you know we, we have been well, we have been we haven't been reading about lately. Um, yeah. <laughs> and anyway. And uh, yeah, Connor, passing about to, passing it back to you per use. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Look, and you can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFSB Side. Um, things coming up, like we mentioned, we'll be doing another Final Frame episode on Stanley Kubrick, which means we'll be talking about Eyes Wide Shut. So that we got we got Bilga, we got Bilga, Bilga Beery Beery on that will one. be joining us for that. Oh, beautiful! Um, so that should be super fun to talk about um, a movie that Dan and I both love. So that'll be nice. And uh, yeah, what else? We will uh, also, of course, obviously be doing at some point. In the beginning of March, we'll be doing another cinephile game night because uh, we've brought that back. TCM, so yeah, yep. with with uh, the folks from TCM Underground. So that'll be another thing to uh, to keep your eye out for as well. In the beginning of March, you'll probably see details about that popping up at at cinephile game on Twitter or uh, or at the film stage uh, as we get a little closer to that. Um, I'm glad you guys are doing those again, by the way. Those oh, are fun as hell. Oh, thanks. To either participate in or just watch. I've found myself like lurking on Twitter some nights just watching you guys play. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> been fun. It's been fun. It's a lot of fun. It was definitely fun to bring back. We, we've done one so far. We did it with the folks at Fangoria, which you can check that out online if you want to go and, and watch. Yeah, that's a fun episode. Yeah. Our old episodes. That was a fun that was a fun one. Um, but yeah, it's good to it's good to be doing that again. It definitely it was it was definitely something that I think was psychologically necessary for a lot of us uh, approximately a year ago. So 
Um, For sure. it's nice to keep, it's nice <laughs> to keep it going in, uh, in some capacity, but other than that, uh, if you like what you've heard here, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you are listening. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. We appreciate the feedback. Um, if you do have other feedback or any suggestions, things you want to hear, see us do future episodes, uh, you can shoot us an email at b-side, B-S-I-D-E, at thefilmstage.com, um, and we, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be sure to take any suggestions into consideration. Until then... As we all march forward, just remember to keep on keeping on.